This episode is brought to you by A Foul Light Shines, a new free serial novel based on a D&D campaign. The Empire of Fire and Water has known 20 golden years of peace since the end of Agenion's War, a peace which is now in peril. When a ragtag group of friends intervene in a grotesque monster attack, they're too late to save a wounded man who leaves them with an encrypted journal and the words, Trust no one, Tyre. Can the gang find Tyre, escape the claws of more strange monsters, and uncover the lurking threat to the Empire before it's too late? This story features themes of found family and strength and diversity, and is available for free on Campfire and Royal Road. A foul light shines. Come for the fantasy. Stay for the cheese-obsessed goblin gunslinger. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless A Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan, and I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with today's enthusiastic, knowledgeable, and just general joy of a guest, Esther Ellis. She is a wonderful and imaginative audio drama designer, producer, performer, and writer for projects including Station Blue, Whale Song, and The Goblet Wire. But she is also the lead editor for the ultra-popular actual play podcast Dungeons and Daddies. I met Esther a few months ago doing a panel together, and she immediately jumped out as someone with tons of passion and knowledge around how to make quality podcast audio, and I have been dying to pick her brain ever since. What I didn't know was how much experience and enthusiasm she had for TTRPGs beyond what she does for her day job. Esther and I talk about tons of things, including their really excellent personal and weird and scary audio dramas, how they got into audio design and into editing Dungeons and Daddies, editing for bingers and week-by-week fans alike, setups and payoffs, editing workflow, giving and taking feedback, transitioning as a creator, and just gobs more. I could understandably go on and on, like we frankly did in this conversation, but that's enough for me. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please go check out some of our other Reckless to Talk interviews and maybe even our actual play episodes while you're there. We have links to all of the stuff we talk about in the show notes, including all of Esther's audio drama productions and much more. And with that, I'll see you next time. Hi, Esther. Hi. <laughs> Hello. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm operating off enough sleep, which is rare. So, Ooh. yeah, excited to talk. <laughs> got got the, the kind of like the talking pants on are kind of like have done your various talking warm ups. The suspenders, you know, to make <laughs> sure that my posture is good and my diaphragm is uh, all set up. That was a real, real bummer thing you said, specifically because I was actively just like I think my shoulders were touching my earlobes and I was a full a full at least question mark, if not full like shrimp yeah so uh, i appreciate you calling me out right at the start of this this conversation i mean my, my posture's 
awful. I I, <laughs> I do exercise mostly just to keep my posture from completely melting while working at home at all times. Just to be one little ball of audio design and yeah. and editing like flesh just sitting in front of a mic. I feel like it's inevitable. Like I will be that <laughs> I will be some Junji Ito like Yep crushed thing eventually but as long as you still have ears exposed and like hands exposed to be editing and doing sound design then at least you can participate in capitalism and art so what more do you need i'm sure capitalism would not mind people fitting in hamster balls so they could just roll them (laughs) from station to station What I appreciate about this intro to this episode is that I think it really does capture a very specific part of the Esther Ellis audio drama experience where there is that little bit of just, well, sure, we should all be hamsters in hamster balls in just perfect spheres. Body horror as the result to the systems that we live in. Yes. (laughs) That's why we ask the artists to describe what the the art that they are making and not try to assign it. But hey, Esther, (laughs) we can't just go in talking about, you know, your your various horrific arts and also your great arts and your funny arts and all of the other other bits and bobs that you do. Yeah, Yeah, we have a plan. We have a plan. And that plan starts by telling the listeners who may not know you who you are your pronouns and what they what they might know you from who who are you uh esther i am esther ellis i use she her pronouns most people on this podcast will probably know me as the sound arm of dungeons and daddies (laughs) i am the the silent sixth member of that show so i've done all of the audio for season two I just kind of run all the audio now. I have my assistant, Travis, who also who's taken over for me what I used to do for Freddie. And I make audio drama. I'm mostly known as a sound designer there. And to some people, I'm also known as a writer. Mm -hmm. Like that's probably the thing I put the most craft into, but also the thing, you know, I could sound design for a million hours before I could write for 10. That's the the like the great burden and curse of being an indie creator of any sort is like, hey, I have one thing that I really enjoy doing, really like doing and I'm pretty good at. And also, I guess there are these six other skills that I have to foster or do or hire someone to do for me. And oops, here we are. There's so much more. Well, Esther, I have a hundred million questions ever since we talked. We were part of a panel together over in Invictus Con uh, in like March, I think, or something like that. You have been circling my brain as like, well, obviously I need to talk to Esther Aha. ever since then. The so, virus worked. <laughs> yes, exactly. You, the hypnosis uh, that, that you have, have done has really paid off, I think. I hope at least. We'll check in at the end of the interview to see if you're like, nah, not worth it. Yeah. But <laughs> we don't start with kind of the, hey, you're a professional. Tell us about being a professional. No, that's not where we start. We start, we try to build the lore. We try to build from the beginning here. That's craft. We can't just go straight to Rosebud. We have to do all the flashbacks and like scene building. So how did you get into audio art, I guess, and audio audio as a medium? Are we going to start with the audio, not the tabletop? We'll start there. Yes, I think so. Okay. I had ended up in Los Angeles through pretty uncommon means. I didn't intend on (laughs) staying here, but I had done a lot of improv up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Our team was quite I would say successful in the innovation. We were a very young team um, and we would do things like the last show I did with them was improvise an entire James Bond movie for multiple shows. And we would have people like give us the name of songs and the villain and just do like a full length hour and a half. If you've ever listened to 20 sided stories, most of the people in that podcast come from the same group. Oh, cool. And so 
I moved down here. I was like, you know, it'd be cool to do like a proper L.A. improv program while I'm stuck in Los Angeles. And so I did. And then I wanted to make a team where I was like, all right, let's do like improvised horror movies. That sounds great. Awesome. Yes. And I was very broke. Uh, and <laughs> people were like, OK, cool. Well, we need a coach. I was like, how are we going to pay $100 a week on top of busing, on top of our normal classes to have someone coach us on a format we have not invented yet? And I quickly found with L.A., uh, people can be enthusiastic, but they want you to have proven yourself first. Otherwise, mm, they're sure. just going to go to whatever the standard is. And I didn't go to school for any of this. So I, don't, I didn't even know what a producer was. So I was like, OK, I'll go make my own thing. And so I <laughs> had been messing with the idea of a security guard in an empty building in Antarctica. And I, I was going to improvise it into my iPod Touch. And that was the plan. I, I ran the idea by someone at work because she's just like, oh, are you working at anything? And she's like, oh, I like that idea. I'd like to produce it. And then told me to bring her an outline, which I did. And then told me to bring her scripts. And I was like, ah, I'm an improv person. I've never written anything. <laughs> like, I, I think I'm just going to. And she's like, no, I need scripts. And cue a, a year-long uh, back alley MFA program <laughs> where she just passed on everything she learned at USC. And uh, so I, I made Station Blue, mm -hmm. and I didn't know how to record anything, so I figured out how to record. And I wasn't planning on sound design, but I was like, ah, this opening scene needs a little something. And so I started messing in Reaper with adding sound effects, and then I kind of blacked out. And three and a half days later, I had a fully <laughs> sound design episode. I, I had to like hit up Travis, who's the Dungeons and Daddies assistant editor. Uh, you'll also know him as a main cast member in 20 Sided Stories if you've listened to that. I'm probably going to plug that show a lot because that's most of my like <laughs> original uh, link to the actual play world. Six months later, he's shaking his head because now I have like a relatively successful show. And he's like, you didn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I would say audio is like the first thing that I just kind of came to me. Most things in my life I'm not particularly good at, and then I work pretty hard at them, and then I become proficient. Yeah. Whereas audio is something that just I started doing it, and I have not stopped. Yeah. When did the ideation part, I guess, of Station Blue start to come together, specifically? The ideation would have been in 2016, because I wow. developed most of it while hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which is a Mexico to Canada trail, going up like the Sierra Mountain Range all the way to the Cascades into Canada. You know, there's a lot of isolation and uh, yeah. <laughs> struggles when you're living outside for five months. I had written like a couple scripts before I went out and then I developed like a lot of the moods and whatnot while out there. And then it took me a good like year, year and a half between life happening uh, to actually get the scripts done to the point where I could start producing it. So I produced it in earnest like end of 2017. And then I put out the whole show in 2018. Right. I grew up on radio dramas because my family moved away from family when I was like 10. And so we take a long, a lot of like five to 10 hour road trips. Uh, and, I, and I just loved audio storytelling a lot. And so I was like, I'm going to make my own. <laughs> when I was at the point where I was producing, I'm like, I'm sure other people are doing this. And then I got sucked into the audio drama world where, where I have stayed. And so that, that's how I got into audio. And I never went back to improv, by the way. Like when I came back and I had an episode, people were like, oh, yeah, well, well let's do stuff 
together and I was like, I'm busy making this podcast now. I, I, <laughs> I have nothing left. Only, only Station Blue. Yeah. I made this partly because of you guys, but also now I don't, I do not have time. And I right. also don't want to take two buses to, you know, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, so how did, how did tabletop and stuff get leveled in? I mean, obviously improv is kind of like a common funnel, I suppose, into the tabletop space, either make as a, as a, as a content creator, but also just as, as human beings. So how did that kind of get layered on to this, uh, to the, the Esther journey? So now we're flashing back because those are very tied together. My buddy Robert was the first person to introduce me to Dungeons and Dragons, but did it in kind of textbook form. He had all the third edition, not 3.5, third edition. Yep. Back when mm-hmm. he had the ambidexterity feat, which I loved because <laughs> I would play pirate characters and having no downside to dual wielding was great. I remember one day he didn't come out on a boating trip with us because he's like, I got to read these books. And he handed them to me to learn to play the game, which didn't work. And then uh, we'd get pretty distracted when he started running games. But that was a wild because I must have been in the like sixth grade and I was playing a gnome. And by the end of that journey, I'd spent like two years in elf prison and also had kids. And like my buddy that I who was also in my party because it's just two of us was like one of the caretakers like, I was like, what a wild journey to go on as like, what yeah. was I, 11 or something? Unsupervised tabletop role-playing games, especially when you're, it's the first time you've played and or are a young kid can just get like, suddenly I've played 40 years of this person's life. Well, because yeah, you have no goals or like concept <laughs> yeah. of narrative. So you're just kind of reacting to what's right. in front of you. And you're like, oh, we stepped on the grass and now the elves have locked us up. Because we kept being like, how do we get out of here? And he's like... I- you have to serve your sentence. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I was aware of D&D. I told some friends about it who, like, I was a metalhead who was doing these things in middle school. And a lot of my friends were kind of skeptical of metal and skeptical of D&D. <laughs> and then freshman year, they come back from, uh, oh, is it the Unitarian Universalists? They would throw, like, these big, like, festivals and stuff. And none of my friends were religious, but, or, like, I had a couple pagan friends who would go and they brought all the other friends to like this big sleepover festival thing they did. And they played D and D and they, they were hooked and they came back. They're like, do you know D and D? I'm like, yeah, that's that thing I told you about like three years ago. (laughs) But that, that was when I started playing a lot because my friends group got really hooked on it. And I never put like a lot of stock into like the rules. I was mostly like, okay, I want to play a druid who's a dock worker and friends with the crow people. (laughs) And then my buddy who is now an engineer would craft that character off of the like, because now we're in 3.5. So off of the 30 books that people collectively had, because a new one came out every month and you could not really (laughs) build a character with just one book in in 3.5. I enjoyed playing D&D a lot with them, but something that would happen is they would get distracted. Like a tradition we had is last day of the school year, we would go to the all you can eat buffet down the street and we would play (laughs) D&D there until they closed. So we would just be eating pizza and macaroni and like ice cream and whatever. And we had to be the worst because we were like dressed up, but not as D&D. We were all theater kids. So like I, we did improv. We did like, I've been doing improv since middle school. I've been doing theater since middle school. Uh, yeah, we played D&D quite frequently with my improv team and we we're all in theater. And so you, you tended to get these narratives with like really bombastic characters. By the end of high school, uh, I was honestly sick of it because I liked Dungeons and Dragons, but I wanted to do other things too and <laughs> be a well-rounded individual. 
like I grew up Mormon. Mormons, uh, because they typically aren't like drinking or smoking, uh, tend to do. So I'd like run around with them and like start fires and whatnot. And then with my like core friend group, we like play D&D and we'd be in plays all the time. So we'd be doing theater. We would have shows. And then in college, David Mishmerheisen, who's also on 20 Side Stories, I live with him now. I did not live with him (laughs) at the time. Same thing with Travis. They got talking to the captains about D&D. Like we went to Denny's one night because we go to Denny's like three nights a week because improv and theater yep. just does yep. that to you. Totally. They got, he's like, cool, I'll run D&D. So we had like a nine person D&D game and everyone was really excited about making characters. And Travis and I realized that we just knew the most about D&D. Like, I thought I didn't know anything about D&D yep. because like during lunch break, my friends would be arguing over like how much a boarding axe does. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> but I guess if you sit and listen to people for four years, talk about something, you absorb a lot of that. That's how I've learned all of my almost all of my rules is just just being shouted at by by various podcasts and stuff for sure. Yeah. So that was my association with D&D. But the good stuff was Call of Cthulhu. I would say my proper like introduction. The one that really like was like, oh, this. Yes, this works for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should have probably brought this up first, but I'm a rambler. That's the format, baby. It's all rambling. That's the yeah. whole should be rambling attack. I don't know or something. Well, and and it's usually these are D and D podcasts. So that's my history with D and D. My history with the role playing games that I loved was uh, in middle school. My f- friend Justin started inviting me over to like their Friday night game night. Ooh! So we would go. We would play flag football uh, until it got dark, and then we would eat pizza and goof off and do sketches and stuff, and then. The candles would come out and the lights would go off and props came out and we would play Call of Cthulhu. And our group was age range between like 12 and 19. And we'd have like 12 people (laughs) while my friends were going off playing or before they were doing that. And then like throughout high school, that was the role playing thing that I think really did it for me. It was just playing Call of Cthulhu and its various modified forms. Um, and then afterwards, we'd go play Capture the Flag while we were all freaked out. <laughs> In the dark. Yeah, so that and that was perfect for me because it's like I like these role playing games a lot, but I also want to go do other things. Um, <laughs> and eventually I brought my friend group, my D&D friend group to it, and they loved it. They were hooked. But then they would get mad at like me and my buddy Justin because we'd be goofing off and they're taking it so serious. Like they, they're like, oh, Cthulhu's like this serious game where you're doing mysteries. Sure. Totally. Uh, and my buddy is, you know, playing Falula Chong, the guy whose face looks like a potato with a bunch of wood chips shoved in it. <laughs> Which is less tonally consistent, I think, right. than than yes, I'm an I'm a librarian scholar who has delved too deep into the secrets of the of the world or what have you. Yeah. And and I am glad I exposed them to that Call of Cthulhu game because I think it improved like our D D games. Sure. But like college was when I started, I think, like DMing a lot, mostly because I was people get distracted, as you've probably experienced and everybody listening's experience. You get excited about a character. You spend a couple of weeks talking with your friends about the campaign. You play for two sessions and then they get another idea for other characters and any of the plot hooks go left. And when you leave a town, it disappears like, and I was like, no, nah, it's driving me crazy. And so when I started, I started DMing because I'm like, I want, I want to finish a campaign. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, I want to com- yes. conclude a story. So. And was it a and d campaign that you're like, all right, when you, when you finally accepted the, this burden uh, of finishing a campaign? 
it was Pathfinder. Right, got because it. Because uh, that was, I think, what pulled me into back into third. Because I really liked third edition a lot, but it was such a mess, and I don't like owning a lot of things. And so having yeah. all of those books is just a nightmare. So when a, <laughs> a friend slapped down the Pathfinder core rulebook, and they're like, this is everything you need. I ran a horror campaign called Kaldorian Horror, which incorporated a lot of Call of Cthulhu sure. elements and where I would do weird things to switch. Like, they, they went into a dream dungeon after getting stranded on an island. And so I got access to our black box theater and I turned out all the lights except for a spotlight on the stage where I was DMing from. Come on. And then had our surround system playing noises. And then I set every chair in a place where you, out of your peripheral, could see into two dark rooms and put everyone throughout. Because I was just trying to scare my players, Stop. which is impossible because <laughs> players are like all jesters. Yeah, jesters who also are like, yeah, and also I have a sword and my whole job is to kill people with it. Yeah, really difficult to like get under their skin or I so I thought afterwards they're like, no, we were joke like once we finished the campaign, they're like, we're we're joking because we needed levity because this thing was really intense. <laughs> but I ran that campaign. I had an anthropology, a meteorology, and a geography final in the same semester. So that was when I built the world. Like Naturally, I built a yep. fully functioning weather, tectonic plate, solar system, you name it, planet. Cause I'm like, if I can make this planet, I'm a very lazy DM. If I can have finals force me to make a planet and populate it and fast forward it thousands of years with these cultures and stuff, I will pass my finals, which I did. <laughs> and me being a lazy DM, I have been running in that world for 12 years. Like yeah, That's sick as hell, though. That's not lazy. That's just cool. Yeah, there are two other DMs that run in that world. We've had something like 70 or 80 playing characters. Wow. And every time someone stops playing, they like graduate into NPCs who are semi-successful. So you have like my buddy Jay and like Anthony Birch, who's the DM of Dungeons and Daddies, like went off and started trying to take care of take like over a kingdom. But then we stopped playing. So I'm like, all right, if you go over there, you've got to deal with like Anthony and Jay's old character. I've just had so many people who don't know each other all like contribute to this world. That's incredible. Yes, especially yeah, 60 or 70 different like PCs all running around. Do you have like shared like a shared history of it too? Like, is this all like, is it all canon? All the all the things? Oh, yeah. So the campaigns I run for that world are two to three months long because I find any longer than that and like usually con you know, like scheduling conflicts. And I can usually sure. tell a really good story in two or three months. So the rule of every campaign is it has to permanently change the world in somehow. Cool. I didn't love playing in games where it felt like I was in the DM's precious sandbox that I couldn't actually influence. I'm like, no, I like this world. And also, please, like, break it and mess it up. Yeah. Uh, in the camp campaign with Anthony and Jay, they, due to their actions, like, caused a, a ship battle to go a certain way and got the Pirate King locked up. Two years later, a completely different group who did not know either of these people had a six-long heist campaign to bust out the Pirate King using tools they had gained through, like, other campaigns. So the next time I run, which who knows it's going to be, but it's going to be, like, probably a 12-person multi-night. People have to pick who's going to play on what night game that will result in the apocalypse give them the tools of the apocalypse and then fast forward like 50 years and then give a bunch of people who've never played DD a diplomacy game using my map and giving them all the factions that have developed over the campaign oh yes then i will have a world that like i didn't make anymore because it's yeah, already totally. a world that over 10 or 12 years like a bunch of players have influenced heavily 
Because if you come up and you're like, this is my idea for my backstory, I'll be like, cool, that is now a nation I don't have to come up with. And so I try to, pr- anytime somebody makes something, I promote it. And if they're like, I, it's all original ancestries in the world. So like, if you're like, I want to play an elf this, I was like, okay, well, those don't exist. But what do you like about playing that? And we'll find the equivalent. Totally. And I've, I've tried to run like a generic D&D world because I noticed like, People have gotten really into 5th edition with the advent of Critical Role and... And Dungeons and Daddies. And Dungeons and Daddies. They keep me in business. <laughs> so I was like, okay, maybe I should like have a setting that does not require a two-hour-long conversation just to onboard you. Like, I should just yeah. <laughs> do something where you can bring anything that's in a core book. You get it. There's the pirates guys. There's the whatever guys. I, I think there's something intoxicating about them knowing that like they're part of this legacy of dozens of players. Yeah, for sure. For you, what is the kind, either the kinds of stories or the kinds of experiences or the kind of things that you like in having a tabletop role playing game group? When does it, you know, kind of sing and when does it kind of like really connect for you versus when it's like, yep, I'm showing up and I'm hanging out with friends and that's fine and nice and please pass the pretzels. Uh, My favorite thing is like three months in when you look at what is being done and what like events are in place. And you know that only the group at that table could have created that series of events, like when they truly make it their own, like for that heist campaign, because I being a lazy DM had never like kept track of shops and whatnot. So I'm like, I need to force myself to do a Metropolis game where like it's consistent NPCs and consistent um, buildings and whatnot. And they could have picked any method of busting out the Pirate King or not. Like, they could have betrayed that faction, but they decided to buy a bar. And the I gave them, like, nine buildings they could buy. They happened to build one that was, a li- like, an abandoned library for a faction that the Empire had gone to war with because of another player. So they did that, which means they had the basement access, which had these archives with things they were interested in. Just them picking that building completely changed things. The first thing that kicked off the games for that group was like a pirate great race where it's like all all of the criminals and outlaws were all brought to an island to give a pitch, which was like, we need you to go find the helm of hysteria, which is this lost (laughs) ocean that will uncover once these stars align and you can only find it. We have seven star charts, which is enough for every crew, but only three of the stones that can interpret them. So we're going to have some games to figure out who goes where. And then we're sending seven crews out and you get however you get there. They could have joined any of those crews, but they decided to pick the ship that didn't have a crew and make their own. They could have made allies or enemies of any of those crews. But by the end of that, like their nemeses were people they could have been allies with. So things like that, where I'm just like, all right, let me give you a bunch of pieces, and I don't know what you're going to do with them. And based on what you do, it's going to feel like I planned it the whole time. But I'm like, no, like, you could have killed these characters, like, your best friends, like, you could have been on a completely different side. And now, like, that crew has blossomed into, like, an armada that has an alliance with, like, fire giants and frost dragons and Duragar. I was like, I couldn't have made this up. Like you, and I've tried to impress on them because they're now coming back to like the greater populated world. Like you guys are your own like faction at this point. Um, and it's a very bizarre faction. Like this isn't something a writer would just sit down and make. And then if it's like something like a Call of Cthulhu, I will never run a Call of Cthulhu game that's longer than like three sessions. I just, I like creating mood and memories. And that's like something that's just set up in like all of my work. It's like I want to get something that like puts you in a place. And now like I run a lot of first edition D&D. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, so like I don't know if you've heard of the old school renaissance. I've noticed like people 
write articles about it now, which is wild. Old school Renaissance has been like a winterly obsession of mine for like seven or eight years. I would just like buy a couple books and get into it, not tell anyone about it. And then friends started getting interested. So now a lot of times when I'm running things, I'm running like OSR games. That's what got me into first edition D&D, because eventually you run like, you know, Bastion Land and what else do I have over there? Troika, yeah. <laughs> just, you, you all all of these different settings. And then you're like, OK, where do all these come from? And so you have to start playing first edition D&D to properly understand. And then you have to start reading the books that Gygax and them were reading to be like, OK, right. why? Why Vecna? <laughs> right. I don't know. I'm, I'm in my almost mid 30s now. Like I've been doing this long enough where I'm like, I want to know what the DNA is. So when I go back to D&D and I'm like, why this? I now know the answer. Like, I know how it evolved in the history, which means when I break it, I can, like, come up with an equivalent of it. Most of the people I run for have never played role-playing games before. Usually, like, 50% of my group is new, which I really like doing. And then the other 50% are usually people that I taught D&D, like, years before. If I'm going to run, like, an OSR game, I want you to not know that I have stuffed it full of references back to, like, the 80s tradition. So that when you then watch the D&D movie, you're like, oh, I know what this is. Or when you're playing with other friends, you're like, oh, I or now Baldur's Gate's very popular. You're like, okay, I get this. You didn't know you were getting it, but you get it. Yeah, usually right now, just because I'm busy making audio drama and Dungeons and Daddies, like smaller games, uh, like OSR games, like I'll just use a combination of rules. And I I think soon the Dolmenwood settings finally coming out. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or Mm -hmm. like Facebook. Oh, okay. I'm going to give you a little OSR pitch now and you're going to go spend money after this recording or maybe during it. So to give the audience a fill and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, there's a tradition called the old school renaissance. And my best pitch In the 90s, role-playing games exploded and you had a lot of D20 systems. And you had the Baldur's Gate games come out, Neverwinter and whatnot, which gamified third edition and made it more of a computer game with like rules for everything. Before that, that wasn't really the case. So OSR is like, what if instead of third edition happening, games went a different way, but using the core of like first and sometimes second edition D&D. And the games get really weird. They get really psychedelic. It's very like King Crimson. (laughs) OSR has been a thing for a while, but like really over the last, I would say, 10 years, there have been a lot of resources for it. And over the last year and a half, I think it's become popular as people are looking for alternatives to fifth edition. And like the setting for OSR has been Dolmenwood, which has been distributed via zines because a lot of OSR is just done by zines. Like Winter's Daughter is an adventure you should run and you can run it in fifth edition. They have all the stats built out, but it's in Dolmenwood, which is kind of like a fairy tale, like dark fairy tale, very forest oriented, very fae oriented setting, like lots of like old school knights. That, that will be the first setting I did not invent that I will run. It really seems like you enjoy having a you kind of a base set of, of knowledge, of information, of whatever, of like, ah, this is the world I built forever ago and also an accumulation of knowledge. Or here are the pieces I'm putting in front of the players yeah. and then just kind of like letting it go from there. Is that kind of accurate as to how you kind of approach uh, like gaming stuff specifically? That's how I approach like everything at this point. That's why it's interesting is because like audio drama when, if you're scripting stuff, if you're putting it together meticulously, especially for like horror kind of stuff where there's setups and payoffs and tensions and, and all that kind of stuff, it just it strikes me as potentially very different, but maybe not necessarily. 
I just like consistency in settings. Like for the yeah. longest time, I did not like having 20 or 30 playable races because I was like, how do all of these exist? Like, how how does this or you'd have things where it's like, oh, this was added because this one guy who worked there for a while added. It's like, I want this to feel like a world that you could live in and could influence without getting into the science and all that. Like, I'm not very strict with it. And that's kind of what I I look into settings that have had a lot of thought put into them. And it's where like Dolmenwood, this is a guy I really trust to make something that's done that and put hundreds of hours into like developing and working on it. Collaboration is very important, but I try to give at the start of collaboration a really good core for people to work off of. So if you look at my current show, my like microfiction, which is very much an OSR show called The Goblet Wire, I created a concept, which was a weird role playing game that you play over the phone that you play with a D6 made out of bone and a coin from your country of origin. And the sessions are five to six episodes long and it can get very weird. And I created the base rules for it. And then I brought on a bunch of other really talented writers and creators who made their own episodes. And so they'll bring me scripts and I'll be like, okay, we should alter this to fit with the consistency. But now you've made a rule for this type of thing. And so that is now a canon part of the game. Um, that we're going to add to the writer's doc. It's a miracle. Like that, that is something that came very much <laughs> came to me in dreams. And I cannot even take credit for because the amount like there's a team in Singapore working on like a Southeast Asian variant of this getting into like how Western imperialism affected Singapore and how like getting rid of it, how that altered things, but it's still like all over the upper class and they're using it as like a very Freemason. Like I would not have been able to come up with, but just there was enough of a core there, whereas it was not too much of a core where you could not read it. For example, in my setting, the empire does not have a name beyond the empire. It's not the empire of insert syllables here because I'm like, I'm not writing a book. I'm running a role playing game and yep. my players can understand empire. Yeah, totally. When I name things, it's just like, cool, there is a continent named Peril because I don't need a bunch of syllables. It is named Peril. <laughs> you know that that's a dangerous place that you want to be at least level nine before you touch yeah. <laughs> it. So I try to keep it simple enough where people can just hold it in their heads or at least like the concepts. And with Goblet Wire, it was similar, though we can get a lot weirder with that one because it's scripted. And also, like, it's just, it's very much like Dreamlands. And so, like, the writers, when they're writing, like, players and stuff, they can really go off in interesting directions. So I feel like I have to take a like a step back for an adjacent on ramp to talk about kind of like tabletop as an audio medium and that kind of stuff. But before we do that, I feel like we should talk a little bit about you know, the 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 tabletop role playing game podcast that you are a part of and edit. Oh, for. yeah. Dungeons and Daddies. <laughs> the reason you probably clicked on this episode. Right. Well, I mean, yes or no. I don't I don't want to say again. Hopefully we have a, a few audio drama listeners as well. People I'm who sure, have enjoyed sure your other do. shows. But yeah, so just kind of as a way to kind of set the stage, how did you get involved? You've already kind of mentioned that you had some connections with with some some of the the key players, so to speak, no pun intended, of Dungeons and Daddies. But yeah, how did that get kind of in your life? And also, where was that in your own kind of audio journey? Where you had you started doing Station Blue? I guess you would have with that timeline. I yeah. think is that correct? Or like just yeah, what's how does it all fit together? Ah, uh, it's so weird. It comes down to I went to a friend's going away party that I almost didn't go to and my entire life has spiraled from there. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I went to that party and it was at the Birch's 
the house they lived at with a bunch of other people. And I had talked to one of their roommates and I don't know how D&D came up, but he's like, you should run games here. So I started running weekly games at that house. So that's how I met Anthony and got to know, like, I know Anthony as a player better than as a DM more than anything. I don't even know if he plays these games because he is not (laughs) like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, if you haven't (laughs) noticed listening to the show. And so I was like, that was kind of a challenge while running for him because I was like, okay, I want to make a game you can have fun in. And then, like, I met Beth independently through that house, like, years later. Like, (laughs) Anthony was long gone. Um, Like, he'd show up for you know, parties occasionally, but he's very much a homebody. And so I met Beth separately. At the same location? So we in our neighborhood, we have like four or five houses that are not related, but all of us are like from the East Bay somehow. And we are all like somewhat adjacent. So we, we do parties at these various houses. Got and it. I met Beth through that scene. Eventually, you know, one thing led to another and we moved her into my house because I have like I run a house full (laughs) of it's just like full of artists who kind of have different disciplines. So I mostly knew Beth is a poet. Yeah, Uh, like Beth's poetry is incredible. If you haven't checked it out, I had met Freddie through he but Freddie was my friend's bass player. And so that's how I knew Freddie and Freddie knew I was into podcasts. Like I'd met <laughs> Freddie at the parties, but because the, they were trying to explain rocket jump to me. And I was like, that's right. I was like, yeah. that's where Anthony works, right? And they're like, <laughs> you know, and now I've gone back and I've watched Rocket <laughs> Jump's like Hulu show. I'm like, oh, I, I feel like such a like an out of touch rel- like older relative. I'll be like, you guys yeah. are really good at directing. <laughs> wow, this is really wow. Did you know that you guys are like good at your job? Because I just know them as like the chuckle fucks that I've been editing for like right. multiple right. years through various this podcasts. Might, you might have some real some real legs with this thing. Yeah, I was just like, oh, you guys were running a team of like fifty people. We got a team of like three people. Yeah, <laughs> and so, um, but I, I, I just very, I was not. I, and I'm, you know, I like I didn't know a lot about YouTube. Like most of the YouTube I've watched since are just YouTubers I've met. <laughs> so I knew Freddie as my friend's bass player, and my friend runs one of my like favorite bands. Like if you listen to Station Blue, uh, she plays out the finale of Station Blue, and I'm gonna try to have her play out the finale of every season. Oh, cool. I didn't know Matt and Will. They were the people I I didn't have. I don't. I, I might have encountered them at a party or something. But I was known as, I think, like the podcast, the person who's like obsessed with sound design and podcasts and whatnot, (laughs) because like I went to school for psychology. Like when I went to L.A., I was like, am I going to continue my education? Like, can I afford to? Is my mental illness going and like full time work going to permit this? And the answer was no. Like I I could not (laughs) get a Ph.D. and work full time and go like test well and not have depression or mania completely mess it up three times a year. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that seems I mean, that's a lot to juggle. I think we can agree. So it's like, I've been doing the arts my whole life, and people have always asked if I wanted to go into them, and I always said, no, I want to go into psychology. So I was like, you know, let me try the starving artist. So I went hard on podcasts, like really hard. And so when it came for them to make Dungeons and Daddies, Freddie was looking for people to, you know, on, on his like friends group to, to like look over it. So I was a consultant on the first few episodes of Dungeons and Daddies and gave them a pile of notes and a pile of episodes on like, hey, these are things you should continue to, you should consider to speed it up. These these are different sound design things you can and or should not do. Like I was like, here's an extreme over here of 20 sided stories where everything is sound design and scored and whatnot and cut down to the point where it almost feels scripted. Here's the other half of like completely undone, you know, here's some metrics. So I talked to Freddie a lot about that. 
And then I didn't really have dealings with the show outside of Beth. Because Beth was always like, Freddie wants me to be on a show. Should I be on the show? So I remember that was kind of a thing at our house. And we're like, yeah, why, why wouldn't you? Like, even if you just do it for a couple months, like, try it out. One of the first proper episodes of Dungeons and Daddies I heard was like, they were at Bullywugs, I want to say. <laughs> and I had been out on a backpacking trip for like a week with Beth up in the Sierras and came back. She's like, oh, I want to listen to this because we're really excited about our intro because it was the... Um, Oh, what was it? We did a parody of that parody intro in season two. I don't remember. It had yes, to do with I remember. I remember that there was a parody, but in, in my brain is freezing up at the it, moment. It had to do with Peyton. I remembered that, and I didn't know who Peyton was. But then, then I started. Li- I'd listen to the show as like a supportive roommate, and also something that like I, friends I knew were working on. But then Freddie was looking for editors uh, for Story Break specifically, so I emailed him. I didn't hear anything for two months. And then I got a, a, a message from him being like, oh, I just saw that, like, you have an application in here. Like, can you meet, like, tonight at, like, 6? I was like, sure. And <laughs> so he came over, and I opened the door, and he's like, all right, let's see your setup. And I took him to where I'm sitting now, and I showed him the things. <laughs> and he sat down and said, okay, we're, we want to start you on Story Break, and then ideally Patreon content for Dungeons & Daddies. And I was, because for me, I'm like, wait, do I have a job and then he's like, what's your rate? And I'm like, I, I have to be on, I should have an answer to this. I'm like, I have no idea. My rate is uh, I sit down to work on my own projects and yeah. hope that people listen to them. <laughs> yeah. And so he handed me a dollar amount that just like made, you know, my my eyes like explode. Um, and I was, I was like, OK, for me, that was like life changing money. And so I started working on Story Break and I worked on Patreon. I worked really hard at, at it. And um, Story Break would do these things where it, it's a like movie pitch podcast so it's matt will and freddie create like taking they could take like a meme from the last week and try to turn it into a functioning movie pitch in an hour but then like occasionally they would get bored and be like what if we did a whole season of our jar jar binks movie and so i spent like a whole year and a half of the pandemic like making a fully like you can listen to it now it's three and a half hours long Jar Jar being sound designed to movie. My life is very ridiculous. <laughs> but so I, I did a lot with that. And I did I was doing all of like their bonus content, their one shots. And a, a little bit after deck picks, uh, he started having me work on the main show because that was always the plan was like, eventually, I want to have you work on the main show. I did like a, a like kind of I would say like 60% of the edit for like a handful of episodes. And then it got to the point by by the last 10 episodes of the show where I was doing like 95% of the edit and then he would come clean it up and uh, do like sound design and music to it. And then come season two, he's like, I just want you to take over, which worked out for me because like I love horror sound design. Mm-hmm. Guess what season two was the Call of Cthulhu horror thing, like all, all of my roots and loves like coming back. And I've just gone really hard on that season anytime they give me a chance to do something gross so like i knew beth and anthony and freddie independently from each other but that kind of brought them all together and then by the time i was like properly working on daddies and interacting with everyone on a weekly basis i had like knew matt and will pretty well from story break and so that's that's been my connection with the show just like behind the scenes working at it a lot being known for like making station blue for example not that anybody knew anything about it they just like you know freddie's kind of assumption was if you can make an audio drama you can make a pretty good sounding talk podcast yeah 
So even though you were, I guess I don't know all the details, but at least as presented is like, you are the podcast person, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're the podcast gal. You've done, you know, uh, audio dramas. You can edit the podcast. But also you had been playing tabletop role-playing games for like a long time and had been making worlds and doing different systems and that kind of stuff. Which is um, funny that how irrelevant that is to my work. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that's what I was, was going to ask is, you know, I think people can easily edit a, you know, a, a, a tabletop role-playing game podcast who do not play tabletop role-playing games effectively. A, do you think that is the case? And B, is there any interplay with kind of your experience and your kind of uh, just perspective on playing tabletop role-playing games and consuming them and knowing about them when it comes to actually editing it? Or was that more just knowing about audio and maybe knowing about other podcasts that exist? The audio drama element definitely helped the most because with audio drama, it takes so long to make it that you have to be really you have to kill your darlings so to say like you cannot be afraid to like cut a line or do all that because then you're going to spend months making that happen whereas like anthony and i could not be more different dms for the actual play element i actually have to divorce myself from any of my role-playing roots you got it i must have spent 30 minutes telling you about my role-playing experience and like i tried to mitigate telling you about like my role-playing world because like telling someone about your character (laughs) is like telling someone about your dream it can be really great but you just have all these like associations and memories and stuff that that person's never gonna have totally which is the best part of role-playing games in my opinion But as a result, like I want to create the best possible episode for the audience. And so I need to not have opinions on the narrative that like Anthony doesn't have. I think a benefit to being kind of familiar with these guys in like very informal settings was like we have a pretty informal setup when it comes to like, I'm not afraid to go in and be like, hey, guys, I think this ending is bad. And I'm trying to edit it into a thing that I don't personally think is bad. But like, (laughs) can we do a pickup? And we're all very in sync to the point where generally when I'm about to type that message, I go and there's already a pickup for it. Uh, But like I like Dungeons and Daddies, I get in the mindset of like, what is Anthony trying to do here? what does the audience find funny? Like, what do they find valuable? And I I try to just like put myself in a capsule that is that show to make it the best version of itself possible. We just had a two and a half hours worth of recording that I cut down to about an hour and five minutes. Wow. I would get notes, you know, especially for the first handful of episodes of like season two. But like most of season two, I don't even really get notes anymore just because they trust they're like, all right, Esther can take care of this and so like i'll cut things that they might have really liked and i try to check in with the players if i think it's going to be significant or with like i haven't had to do this too much with like latest episodes but like first 10 episodes i would bug anthony and i'd be like hey you foreshadowed this is that something you're planning on bringing back yeah because i want to create like a music theme for it that will work in the future if that's the case so i i will always defer to them because it's my job to make it as good as possible and then to listen to them yep got it I I will fight if I think something that already exists in the show is better. So like episode one of season two, they recorded three times. Wow. I was like, I think we need to keep these three things that you didn't like from the first recording because I think it's actually really good. And you guys are just like feeling bad about the recording itself. And I think that's something that's really important to Freddie is being able to go in and be like, hey, here's what I think will make this the best thing possible. But as a result, like I can't have personal opinion. I can't have favorite characters, you know? 
know, I can't have ways I want the plot to go because then I'm going to be influencing the edit in a way that I don't think it's like fair to the audience. Yeah. But I can try to like clone, you know, like I, Freddie over like a year, year and a half, very much made me like an editing clone of him. Got it. Yeah. So like as an editor, when it comes to just chopping down episodes, I'm like 90% Freddie. Um, when it comes to like sound design and editing, I'm like 60% Freddie. Like if you listen to Freddie's episodes versus mine, it's kind of like watching a TV show. They all have different directors. And if you don't think about it, you won't really notice. But if you do, you can tell like which ones Freddie edited versus me. Like even our sound design tastes are different. I've tried to do the same thing with Anthony as much as possible and with the players. Cause like, I know their voice, like, especially Matt and Will, I know their voices so well. I, I can generally like edit in advance because I know when there's going to be a run-in sentence. I know when they're actually going to, like, find their point, uh, just because I, I've listened to their voices more than they have, which which is a roundabout way of saying, like, I, I actually do have to leave my role-playing uh, baggage on the, at the floor. Being familiar with tabletop games, I think, is super important, because then you know, like, a D20 is a big deal. Like, emphasize <laughs> these moments. I know what, like, moments to sound design. Because it's like, cool, this is a moment that sure. like, like we used to play d and like because we we're all like metalhead theater kid D&D players in high school, uh, which like I was very appreciative of a season four of Stranger Things for giving that like faction representation because it's like that, like if, if your climax wasn't happening to like Iron Maiden or Dragon Force or something, <laughs> like what are you what are we doing? doing? And yeah. so for those moments, those are where I'll go really ham on sound design. But like also knowing what's special about it and like being at the table, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. That was something from from the panel we did. That was something that really stuck stuck with me for a long time. You saying uh, saying specifically of like, I don't want to over sound design or I don't want to pull people away from the table because that's like where the show kind of like lives. And that's where the energy is, is like being at the table right there. You also mentioned putting yourself in a capsule, right, of what the show is. And like, that's the bounds that you're working in. So how do you go about putting yourself in that headspace, especially because you do multiple different shows, you do your own shows that you're kind of doing, you know, kind of like and truly have like a lot of creative control over. You are doing Dungeons and Daddies, where there's a lot of people who have a lot of creative voices. So how do you go about putting on your I'm a Dungeons and Daddies editor hat now? And oh, I'm some audio designer or or whatever, you know, audio drama me now? Yeah. Or does it just kind of come through a lot of repetition? Uh, like experience and repetition is, is mm-hmm. definitely key to that. But it's knowing the goals going in. And also through getting notes over time, I can kind of get an idea of like, all right, I think this is a note they would give. Because it's funny now when I listen to if Freddie edits something, I'll listen and I'm like, oh, I like over took some of Freddie's notes because I'm like, he will keep stuff that I'll cut. Like I see it as ghostwriting. Like if you're going to be a Mm. ghostwriter for someone, you're trying to make something in their voice. And so when I put on my Dungeons and Daddies hat, for example, like the one shots, I'll go more ham on uh, or or the miniseries, especially those are where I'll take a lot more. Uh, I'll, I'll bring in a lot more liberties. And sometimes it's down to the player, because in my perspective, like from my opinion, uh, the player gets to make the call of like what is significant. If I am tempted to like run music under one of Scary's bits, I'll hit up Beth. And now I know Beth generally is not going to want music to underscore, which is valuable. And they're, they're all film people. And so they have things like, I know I could add something. Like there's a version of Dungeons and Daddies where I completely follow my instincts and have full creative control over the post that the audience would really love and be impressed by. 
with like anytime I add music, like it's going to bring tears to people's eyes, for example, but it's better if there's no music and it brings tears to people's eyes. So it, it is like using a, a soft touch between all of those things. I think it kind of comes together. And if there's something like the episode coming out on Tuesday, for example, I did a lot with. And so that was something where I was like, hey, guys, like, I know you're on tour. If you want to listen to this one, it is up because otherwise this is going to go out into the world. and You will not have a say until you listen to the live <laughs> listen and say, like, oh, why, why did that stay there? And so that was a case where I'm like, hey, I definitely made some decisions. I cut a whole like storyline here to emphasize a different storyline. Other than that, like if I do something like that where I'm just like picking and choosing what's going to stay in the story and what's not, I will like go back and be like, hey, here's a list of canon. Freddy still has his garbage can that didn't get thrown away. Like Lincoln didn't go back to hell. Like here's, you know, and that's for people who listen to the uncuts, they can go back and see how much of this changes. I see myself as crucial, but not important to the audience's experience. It's all about the players and it's all about Anthony directing the players. I am not a player. I'm not a DM. I'm going in there to make them shine and make the show work as well as possible. A lot of people like the audience doesn't know I exist. And that's like a huge compliment to me. It's just key to like not having an ego. And I think that's being an editor in general, because you're generally working for someone else to bring someone else's creative vision to fruition and you want to have a point of view. Like I have a very strong point of view for Dungeons and Daddies that I will present and edit with and all of that. But I don't have an ego with Dungeons and Daddies. Like if they're like, no, we want to keep this, even if I disagree, it's like, cool, you've heard my points, you've heard the alternatives, like let's push it through. You know, 39 times out of 40, that works out. Occasionally there's a 40th. But it's, then you have to say like, it's an, it's an improv show. The fact that any of this works is a miracle. <laughs> like, it's yeah, okay sure. if it doesn't always sing. Was the shedding of the ego as editor, was that something you had to work on? Or was that something that you just were able to be like, nope, you are, you guys are the creators and I have my opinions. You hired me to have opinions. And then I just, I give them. And then I kind of like help you achieve what you want to do. Like, yeah. was that a process for you or just something that, that you have? It's definitely like a core part of my personality where anytime I'm getting in like a new situation, whether it's like a sport or a job or whatnot, uh, it like I mentioned before, I'm not usually naturally good at things like I, I have to work at them. And so there's kind of an onboarding period of like, like, it feels like being a changeling in that it's like, cool, I'm gonna have to spend a while studying and figuring this out. And then eventually, I'll be able to do this with confidence. Because like, I can always do something with confidence, but I can't always do what you want me to do with confidence. And so figuring out like what they valued and all of that it's kind of my normal way of going. Like, I'm not going to kick in the front door day one and be like, I want to do all these things. I'm going to go in and I'm going to be like, all right, what do you want? Sure. Every audio drama I work on is entirely different and they need completely different approaches and mentalities. So like if I'm being brought onto a show, the first thing I do is I try to listen and figure out what are they doing and what are they not doing. And not not doing as like a negative, not doing as in like, right. that's a choice. And in order to keep the show consistent, I need to make the same choice. And then I'll ask them questions like, hey, is it important for X? Is it important for Y? I ask those questions so that I know how to adapt myself to the project. I think I could order like edit any Dungeons and Dragons podcast and have it them all sound very different based on like what the goal is, like what do that what does the audience want? What do the creators want? 
Something that, that that you brought up just now, and something that I have I've seen you talk about, because uh, you will show up even sometimes on like the Dungeons and Daddies Reddit, like subreddit, to yeah. like answer weird little questions, or at least used to every once in a while, or have talked on other shows, kind of about the importance of having a goal, or having the kind of like what you're designing around, or having made choices to kind of enact a creative vision. Is that something also that you enjoy doing or is that just, again, kind of like a necessary part of the process for you? And how do you kind of go about saying dramatically, here's what we want this, sh- what I want this show to be like. And also audio wise, here's what I want this sh- show to be like. Kind of what's the process and, and is it important for you? I think that's the most fun part of the process of having like material and knowing you're going to keep two thirds of it and just trying to figure out how do you finagle and rearrange and change scenes and whatnot to meet whatever your goal is. And the goals are usually stated in like a D&D. It's like, cool, we want to raid this castle. So it's like, all right, you know, the a successful version of this is the castle has <laughs> been raided. Mm-hmm. Um, and Anthony's generally going to set up like what their next goals requests are or they are. And so I can be like, all right, that is what we're doing here. I know what the players are trying to do with their characters. So like, those are the things that I want to emphasize and make sure really stand out. And so when I'm going through like an edit, I will start it and I will just like on my first pass, I will cut any ums, any pauses, any jokes that I don't think are funny, or I won't cut the joke yet because a lot of times they'll become reoccurring, but I'll mark it for deletion. And Mm. if it's not brought up again, I'll, I'll cut it. I'll I'll get rid of all this stuff that I'm like, I don't want this to be in the episode. And then when I do like a second pass, like if there are a lot of things that like, okay, if I went this way, it's going to feel differently than this way. That's where I'll take notes and I'll start like getting options together. And this is very rare. And it's usually more for like a combat episode. Usually like my first time hearing the episode is while I'm editing it. But occasionally, like if I get into the first like five or 10 minutes into the episode proper and... I'm like, I need to know where this goes. I'll listen to the whole thing. Recently, for example, um, we have a new miniseries coming out for patrons called uh, Dadatha Christie, Who Dad It? Like, very Dungeons and Daddies title. But it's like yeah. a three-part mystery, and we have a bunch of actors in it. Like, it's the most guests we've ever had. And so that was one where I'm like, I need to listen to all of this before I even touch it. Because, like, I also need to know who did it. I need to know who <laughs> yeah. was wrong so that I can edit towards those things. So I can, like, pant. Like, I want to leave little yeah. clues for the audience that they probably won't notice, but the their subconscious will. Those are cases where if I'm really not sure and I need to know where it's going to go, like I'll listen to the thing in advance. But I try not to do that because I try to use the time I'm billing like wisely and effectively. Fair. Yep. Fair. (laughs) So for you, especially when you are kind of bouncing those questions off of off of Anthony, off of the players, off of off of Freddie. How often are you kind of examining the big picture and how much how much does knowing the big picture useful for you as an editor? You know, in in that example, obviously, of like, well, it's a murder mystery. It's a short series. So I'm going to listen to the whole thing and then go from there versus like, okay, cool. I want to know kind of the direction things are generally going so I can start building that direction. Or do you like to take it episode by episode and be able to be like, what does this episode need to be a good episode? And then like worry about kind of the other auxiliary stuff from there? Or is it is that just a a mishmash of both? 
for the broader editing, knowing the whole big picture, I think is really important, at least for what I want with Dungeons and Daddies. Yeah. Like if I set a theme song for someone, I want that theme to come back sure. <laughs> because I <laughs> yeah. find that really satisfying. That happened a lot with the doodler because season two has been very doodler centric. So I very intentionally was like every doodler villain is going to have their own theme song, but they are all going all those theme songs are going to use this kind of dirgy synthy thing as a base to tie you back to that. Or I'm going to use this type of music for like the FBI. And then also there's times where something seemingly unimportant will become a big deal later. And so I try to keep those things in mind. I don't need to do this with Anthony most of the time now. Like it's really the first 10 episodes when we're like setting. And that's where you saw me more active on the Reddit. Cause there were a lot yeah, of things where yeah. people just had like a clarifying question on a character. And I'm like, I know the answer to that. I try to limit the amount I interact with the Reddit and the discord just because people always assume that I know more than I do. <laughs> and so yeah. if I say something or offer an opinion, they're going to give that a lot more weight. And it's important for me that the audience has their own experience, like unsullied by me. Usually if I'm going to jump in, it's going to be like a clarifying question or it'll be right after an episode like in the discord where you know, I want to come in and like hang out because they're paying for that community and they're paying for that perspective where I'll be like, to be clear, I don't have the next episode. I don't know what happens next. Like here's, you know, <laughs> right. But I liked this. Yeah. And you know that there will be more doodler bad guys. And so I can tell you that. There you go. That's the info I have. I, I, yeah, I can run with that. But like there, you know, that was an example is like the big, not the big villain. At, well, I guess, yeah, we could call him the big villain of this series. I called that correctly, be like how he was going to be brought in. But I hit up Anthony. I was like, hey, this is where Willie is, right? Like, and this is going to be bad, right? And he's like, do not tell anyone. I was like, I'm obviously not going to do that. <laughs> he's like, yeah, no, that's Willie. And it's going to suck. And so I was like, cool. Because, uh, you know, there's a door that had four keys. So every time they open one, I'm like, I want to tie in. And I'm like, and I'm like, this guy's Scary's Warlock patron, right? I had a theme for Scary and Willie, and I wanted to incorporate elements of that theme into Scary's magic. And also when they open the door, every key, I'm going to make it a little creepier. That ended up not like even being necessary because they just like spam opened the door after the first one. (laughs) And so, but like those were things where I'm like, cool, if you look, and this is where like my audio drama sound designer brain comes in because I'm all about in my shows, everything connects to everything and everything foreshadows everything. So that way it's like Scary's magic and Willie's magic are different, but they link back to a similar source. And then the music has elements of that source and things that they influence do that as well. I don't have too many opportunities in the show to like really emphasize it. But like we we have a character who is a cheerleader. He's the mascot. And so like I'm like, what? Okay, if he's going to do like a rallying spell, like he's a cleric, uh, I'm going to have like marching band music in the background, like figuring (laughs) out ways to incorporate that where they actually work and then knowing not when not to sound design. But usually if you do something a couple times, the audience will have that in their head in the future. Yeah. I will add more sound usually if the environment is not obvious or if it's something that could easily be forgotten. So like they had a whole combat in a cave made out of meat and they're playing soccer in it with like a flame, like a a sun soccer ball. And I was like, I do not want the audience for a second to forget that they are in a chamber full of meat. So every time they do a kick, we're getting squishy. We're getting searing. Like, this is just so wild that, like, I need to emphasize it. And that'll happen times with characters, too, where, like, in that episode, 
one of the teens barbecued one of the living trees and Anthony described like elves coming out of like little keepler elves coming out of it. <laughs> the character's dad was there and said like, oh no. And it was very quiet. Like none of the players heard it. But I turned up Anthony's like, oh no. And I was like, this is a key character moment because this dad who was a child in the first season, like his plot line was like trauma and what killing does to you and all of that. And so instead of this just being a comedy moment, I'm going to make this a horrible moment where this poor teenager is like torching something to save their lives and their dad is seeing a flash of like how this um, trend is continuing down the family line. And those are times where like I feel like I reach in my my narrative like my I'm the most heavy handed like most of the time I'm very subtle and I try not to be there. That's a case where I'm like no like this could be just for comedy but I think I can play this in a way where this is like a key character moment. Yeah, add another layer basically on top. Yeah. That has like multiple seasons of lore behind it. And I I look forward to as the show goes, you know, assuming we still we continue to do this kind of JoJo's bizarre adventure of like this legacy. (laughs) Those are things I keep in mind as well for the future on like, cool, if season three is going to continue this in any kind of way, like I want to be able to bring these these back, even if the audience doesn't notice. I know a lot of people marathon through the show. Yes, especially when it's done. Like, every week we get posts on the reddit being like i all i've been doing is listening to dungeons and daddies for three weeks i'm almost caught up and i know that will be the case for season two and i think season two is going to be really satisfying in the long run season one i think is punchier and more attractive off the get-go but season two is just set up so many things from the beginning that i think will pay off I want to build to that where it's like all right this isn't necessarily cool right now but this is going to be really cool later Is there a point where you are balancing the needs of the bingers versus the people who are listening week by week? Where it's like, we need to remind people about this because maybe they haven't listened in a whole week or maybe they haven't listened to this episode in six weeks or eight weeks versus like, well, we want to keep things not too repetitive for people who are just like churning through content. A thing that comes up in a lot of actual plays is like spells, like reading out the the rules for the spell. So if we've covered the rules of that spell in the last four episodes, I'm cutting it. Because if you're marathoning through, you don't need to hear that every time. If you're listening to it actively, you have the Reddit and Discord to get to ask clarifying questions. So I am always editing for the bigger experience. There are a lot of bridge episodes where people come back and they're like, oh, that wasn't my favorite or oh, that wasn't as good as last episode. And I was like, well, if the last episode was one of the best episodes of the show, the next episode probably can't be like after two or three episodes, eventually you're going to need to have a bridge that gets you from there to the next thing. And so I edit those with the idea of like the previous episode and what will probably be the next episode so that when you're marathoning through, it all feels like a cohesive unit. So most people who listen to the show are going to listen to multiple episodes at a time well after the show comes out. Like, I don't think like the music and sound design necessarily pays off week to week with like the common elements of it. Uh, some of them do. There's an offhanded comment where was Anthony was, ha- was like saying ring ring in a character's voice. He's like, I don't know. I did that. He's like, well, now this is the most popular ringtone. And so I <laughs> saved it. And I'm like, this is probably going to drive the cast nuts. But every until they tell me not to, every time a phone rings, you just hear ring ring. Like uh, in the Vince McMahon voice. And that's just kept going. And like a lot of the audience will notice that because it's really obvious. I find for like the week to week audience like thing, if it ends on some exciting cliffhanger, that's all they care about. 
there's an episode that I didn't, I knew it was necessary, but I didn't like love the episode. Like I wouldn't have changed anything about it. It was just like, this is, this is vegetables. Like this is a necessary piece. Yeah. And so I did a lot of sound design and a lot of editing to try to like make Mm. it as appealing Mm -hmm. as possible. And all people cared about was the last two lines of the episode. I'm like, I didn't need to do any (laughs) of that. Like the last two Mm. lines happened and now the internet's going to be on fire for two weeks. I'm thinking of like these in arcs of like, cool. If you listen to the whole first arc of season two, it's a lot of monster of the week horror stuff. And so the sound design is different for that. And then after that, we're doing realm hopping. So the sound design is different. I'm like a huge One Piece fan, which has been very confusing over the last year as One Piece has like actually gotten popular because <laughs> it's just been this like quiet thing I've been reading to myself since I was 19. Uh, but that's something like One Piece is really great at is yeah. just like the art's going to change a little bit with each arc that suits whatever that theme is, because the nature of the show, they can do a cowboy theme if they want. Not that they have, but like the most recent arc was a big samurai thing. So he did the structure in like a kabuki play. Like it had acts, which had never been a thing before. So I, I keep that in mind for Dungeons and Daddies too. So if you're going to listen to 20 episodes in two weeks, I want there to be some things that like break that up or flag that you're, I, I want you to be able to listen to a couple episodes and know that those aren't like episodes one through 10. You know, I want you to know, okay, that's part of like this arc or this saga. Like I, I just put too much thought into all of this and like most people are not aware of it. And so, <laughs> Well, that that's kind of my next question is, It's always interesting to me, especially when it comes to doing kind of this sort of constant but very flavorful but in the background work like editing and and sound design and audio design where, again, great editing and great audio design can really elevate stuff. There are limits, right, where like you can overdo it or you can underdo it. And it is a lot of finesse and a lot of touch. Do you have any anecdotes about how you developed your own or at least advice on how other people can kind of start curating their opinions about how they want their shows, whether it's actual play or audio drama or whatever, how they want it to sound or feel or anything kind of along those lines? What was useful for you? First, most important thing when you're doing a show is sustainability. You need to ask yourself, what kind of show am I making? What kind of release schedule is needed for that show to be successful? And what release schedule can we actually like afford to do? And that's going to determine the amount of sound you can even have in the first place. Because you should not go all out on one episode and then not go all out on another (laughs) episode. Like you want to keep it consistent unless it's like a finale. Maybe you can get away with a little more. That's where I think having a point of view, like not hiding from your references. Like for me, it's a lot of horror stuff. It's a lot of literature that I kind of translate to audio. Yeah, I mentioned before not having an ego when I'm editing it, but having a strong point of view on like if, you know, I ever fall off the face of the earth and they get another editor, I want you to be able to tell like what was Freddie's editing, what was Esther's editing, what it was the new editor's editing like i want that point of view to be there because if i'm making all the episodes for season two then that keeps it consistent what appeals to you like i love sound designing weather and so i have a show that's in antarctica and i have like a little Mm -hmm. micro fiction like osr show that tends to incorporate like a lot of ocean and a lot of mood that comes from atmosphere because i really like that i really hate editing footsteps and doors at least some of my least favorite sound design in any show of all time (laughs) so i I, so i you know have less of those where someone else like they really enjoy the artisanal opportunities of different footsteps on different you know materials and reverbs and whatnot if you really hate doing something and you don't have to do it for the show don't because that is going to influence the point of view 
You can have a show that nine out of 10 people hate, but the one person loves it and it vibes with it. And you don't need the nine people to listen to it. There's like too many people on the internet as it is. You just like need your audience. (laughs) So you should not just do things because you think they'll be big and popular, unless that's your goal. In that case, you have a lot of research and rolling the die, you know, ahead of you. But anytime I'm consulting, I always ask people, like, what is your goal with this? Do you just want to make something cool? Do you want to make something quality? Do you want to make something that's going to pay your bills? For me, when I'm making audio drama, all I care about is like artistic expression and audience reaction. I don't really care how many downloads it gets at this point. Like nothing I make is ever going to like touch Dungeons and Daddies. And I'm very (laughs) cool with that. I watched Beth go from 200 Twitter followers to 50,000 Twitter followers in a relatively short amount of time. And I, I have a lot of friends who were just like have been on the Internet for a long time who were like, on the other side of Gamergate and had to deal with all of that. And I've, I've had a lot of conversations about boundaries online and how to like essentially yeah. keep it separate and keep interacting. And that's where it's like, cool. I never want more than 5,000 followers on a platform. <laughs> just nuke it. Once it's once it's there, gone. Yeah, because at that point, it just becomes too much. Like Beth has not been able to look at DMs for years because there's just too many. She yeah, spent all of I'm her sure. time doing it. And so it's more fair for her to not look at any of them than like look at some. With that, like knowing what your goals are, that kind of determines what your edit looks like. And then just like knowing like what, you know, with 20-sided stories, is, is, is I, I keep bringing it up because it is such an extreme in the actual play world. And also the episodes are like 20 minutes long and they have a, the whole season of one shots if you don't want to like listen to a Pokemon season. And so you can just like pick one and like Sage wants every piece of that. He, he does that in 3D audio. He wants every piece to be completely polished and customized, which goes against a lot of actual plays where it's like yeah. you want to feel like you're at the table. You know, you have critical roles, very successful with four hour unedited episodes. And that show would not work if it was edited. Because the appeal of Critical Role is you get to see all the shopping and you get to see all the travel. So then when something big happens, you're grounded with that. I haven't listened to much Adventure Zone, but when I went backpacking a couple of years ago, I'm like, I need to listen to like other actual plays because this is what I do for a living. And so I listened to a couple arcs and I remember a moment where they're like, you know, they had the the rope in the dimension and like they're trying to get up an elevator and like it kept not working. And they finally just like came out and said it. They're like, do you really want this episode to like, like they, they like brought out like, hey, this episode has to end. Do you really want to like have it end or do you just want to let us like get up this elevator? <laughs> and so and that's what Dungeons and Daddies is. I think they could easily spend like five hours with these characters just hanging out, but there's it's not that kind of show. It needs to be punchy. It needs to get to the next moment. Take in all those other factors, take in the business factors, because that's going to set your limitations. And then with limitations, you can get really expressive. Follow your instincts, but also talk to your team about that, because there's going to be times someone's like, hey, I want this really badly. When you're working, especially in your own projects, where you have theoretically unlimited time and you have unlimited uh, ability to tinker and tweak and and just ooh get everything just pitch perfect and do I need that extra footstep yes or no let's try it 13 different ways do you have a sense of when enough is enough for you like where it's like all right I need to just stop and and go from there 
that's all about being in tune with your audience. Like with Dungeons and Daddies, I very rarely worry about like, oh, is this done? Because I generally within two weeks have enough time and I will spend all of the time I want making an episode. Like I have a minimum amount of time I need and I know I need to like block out for it. But that show is so huge and people spend so much money on it that they deserve the best version of it possible. And I can give that to them, at least within my limitations, right? Um, Like, I know what the goals of the show are, and I know I'm capable of delivering on those. And so with that, it's easier to just be like, it's an improv show. People will not notice. If I left ums in, most people would not. There'd be like two angry Reddit posts and a couple two-star reviews. And and they might even be wrong, because it's fine to probably leave some ums in, and it's it's all right. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes um expresses something. There are a thousand ways to make this episode that are all valid and will all get positive reactions. I just have to pick one of them. Whereas with like an audio drama, it's easier to like, you, you look back at your old work, you're like, ah, I could have done this or that different. Right. But you also have to remember that we're in new media. I think most successful things that I've seen in like, for example, the audio drama space have a creator attached to them that people are aware of. So if you're listening to Station Blue, you know, you're not only listening to a story about a, a guy in Antarctica going through a mental health crisis. You're also listening to something that was made in a closet in Los Angeles by <laughs> Esther, who has their own life. And you're kind of buying into that. I've thought of remastering season one, and there's some things that happen with like adaptation, for example, in which I might remaster. But I also think with season one, like it's listenable. Like if it was not listenable, if the recordings were bad, if the uh, if you couldn't hear it in a car, then I would go back and redo that. But I also think like part of the show is my point of view and my growth as a creator. Yeah. And I might be undermining myself by going back and fixing it. It's kind of like my perspective on tattoos, where I'm like, if you get a tattoo you don't really like now, that tattoo still says a lot about like who you were when you've got it. And so just get another tattoo. And with like editing and, and sound design and knowing when to stop, like, I mean, usually when to stop is like the release date. Like it gets to the point where there's a yeah. deadline and you're just like, <laughs> I have to put this out. Like I still spend too much time working on Goblet Wire. Like those episodes are meant to be five minutes long and I will spend four hours the night before tweaking with it, (laughs) which sounds impossible. Like there's a lot of full length audio dramas that do not spend four hours on their episodes. Yeah. Whale Song was the last really big thing I made, which is on all of my podcast feeds. And delightful. Yeah. And Whale Song was one where I just like got to the point where I'm like, this is mush. If you do it long enough, you get an instinct for when you need to make the big plays in your sound design eventually you're going to hit diminishing returns where you can't interpret what your own thing sounds like anymore. And you do not want to have that happen when you have to make big decisions. You want that to happen at the tweaking uh, stage. But now I know more people. Like I made season one of Station Blue very solo. And now I know people that like owe me favors or interested (laughs) in the work or that are on the payroll who I can be like, hey, please look at this. Please like, you know, what do you think? Like I'm way less precious with my work. First, I need to state I am just like so fairly invested in more whale song. Like I need more of that show very badly. And I hope that that comes to fruition and we'll have links to this and a great many other things in the show notes. Uh, Super recommend it. So something that I think something that I know that in the limited amount of editing that I've done and in the editing that I know uh, people, the awesome editing that the people on our show do and lots of other people is over time, you kind of come up with nice 
processes and organi- or, you know, organizational tools and things like that that just kind of like sand the edges off of the process just a little bit so you can spend a little more brain power making those big decisions and making those kind of like fun creative choices as opposed to oh god where did i organize the music and how do i do xyz thing again so in your kind of years of of audio design whether it's for for actual plays or for for audio dramas how do you organize things in ways that work for your brain and like how do you know what's your kind of just process look like when it comes to actually putting a mouse on the, on the the keyboard that's not how mice or keyboards work i was trying to come up with a fun you know when your tires hit the road example yeah, if you have a trained mouse that can type the things for you like that's true that would be fun my my process is that i have systematically trained 50 mice to edit podcasts for me so I, this was like very key to Freddy. Yeah. I went to Freddy's place and I sat there and I watched him be like, here's why we use audition. I'm going to edit this section in Reaper, audition and pro tools. This is why audition, in my opinion, is the fastest thing to do for like a narrative show. And then we went on to the next thing and he's like, okay, your key binds. These are the key binds I use, but your fingers are longer than mine. And so the rule with key binds is you should never need to move your hand, figure out everything you need and then make it where you never need to move your hand. <laughs> so we had all of these little streamline and like I use uh, something he doesn't use, but I use is like the uh, Apple's magic mouse where it's a mouse with a trackpad on the top, which is really nice for audition because I, I just have like a lot of ability to manipulate. Like if you look at Freddy edit, it's just constant clacking because he presses a combination of three buttons that constantly updates it to its current time frame, whereas I will just like scroll with the mouse. But watching him go, I was just like, this is impossible. Like, I don't think a normal human can edit this quickly. But then after doing it for a month and two, like I, I used to spend three days working on a story break episode and that was a weekly show. So I like spent all of my time working on story break right. and my spare time working on Teen Talk. I can now do a story break episode in like three and a half hours. It does not take too long for me to do. And that's as I've trained Travis, because Travis is a musician. He He's known all of this editing software forever, but he knows more of the like, we're going to spend three weeks working on a song. Whereas I'm like, no, we need to do efficiency because I will like, <laughs> I'm not going to cap what you build. But like Freddie, like I've set an expectation as a team because Travis technically works for me. Like, I don't want to be like, hey, Freddie, I brought someone new on and now I'm doubling the amount Teen Talk right. costs. Yeah. And so it's like, look, here's the standard that we're operating out of because you're not going to get that fast today. But if you focus on streamlining and getting faster and making those big moves and watching Freddie edit just in real time was insane to me. And I, now I, I do the same thing, uh, just constant. I, like, I don't even know what my hands are doing. Like, it's just part yeah. of it's an extension of my body. You're plugged in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that just takes time. If you want to be an editor, do more editing, but like focus on getting better and faster at it because it's going to be a pain at the start and you're going to put a lot more effort in. But over time, it will make your life a lot easier. We have a template for the episode. So every time we open up a new like audition project, all of the things are there, which saves probably an hour of work. To walk you through, probably in the next couple days, I'll get the next episode and it will be five waved tracks and I will run them all through my initial presets for Isotope, which cleans them up because we know like who needs what breath control. We know who makes the most mouth noises. We know all of those things. So we have them dialed in per person, which took a little bit to like figure out. But now that we have them, I just have to put them in and 
press a button and it does it. And then I export them. And on the export, I I give them their actual names on like what they're going to have with like an ISO tag on it. And so we know that that has been processed, but it hasn't been normalized. And then we use a service called Auphonic, which you don't need if you have Audition, but it just gets everything to that 16 LUFs, just makes everything louder essentially, but like more legible. Uh, So then I run it through there and I'll put a little Auphonic tag on it. So now we know this is like, we keep everything in archives. So if we ever need to reverse engineer, all the pieces are there. And then I put those in the project and I figure out what is the intro. I chop that. I move it up. I move the like music around it. Here's a neat trick when you're editing a lot is I will go to the end of the track and I will cut like a second. I will, I'll just put a slice there so that if you ever accidentally delete a track, if someone's not talking much and you're like, oh no, now I need to go resync these. You can just go all the way to the end where all you have those five little slices and you just drag it all to the beginning and recut it. Saves my life. There's There's been nightmares I've created for myself. <laughs> yep, yep, been there. So I do that. And then because we have all of our presets, we have custom you know chains for every actor, which is not like that hard to do. It's just take the time to do it so it sounds good. So I do an initial pass where I cut out everything I don't want. And then I do a secondary pass where I clean it up. And then usually on my third pass, I'm adding all the dice. I'm adding sound design. So like anytime they roll a die, I highlight like if Beth rolls a die or if Matt rolls a die, I will like highlight their track and I'll make that yellow. If someone's on the phone, I will cut that and I will make it light green. If another person's on an intercom, I will cut that and make it dark green so that when I go back, I have, I don't have to like type. I just like left or I left click or right click or whatever, make it so I can look immediately and be like, this is where all the dice are. This is where I need to add phone effects or or sound effects, especially now we have all these like, you know, creatures that are eldritch entities that are speaking. (laughs) Yeah, right. It used to be I would do four or five passes. Now I can do two passes and ship an episode and be fine. But usually the third pass, I'm adding sound design and whatnot. So like, do not expect to be able to do your whole episode in like two or three passes. That is just something I've gotten to over several years of doing this. Once I do my second pass, I'll render a draft and I'll send it to the dads and no one will look at it. And then when I do my second pass, when I do the third pass, I'll send it and be like, this is pretty good to go. Freddie will look at it and add his notes. From there, it's just me. Like, unless I do something really crazy, uh, I like do not show the rest of my work to them. They can look at it if they want, but I'm just sending it in. But that only happened over like a long time of getting in sync with them. And they're just kind of trust like, all right, I can do that. And occasionally, you know, there was a time I, I used like a music bit and Matt, Matt and Beth were just like, ah, I didn't like this. And it was like, well, you should have said something because it's in there now. <laughs> we can't really Oops. change it. Oops. Well, it's fine. You know, it, like I'm amazed that doesn't happen more often. I work for the nicest people. There's no time to be like, why did you do this? You moron. I also kind of know what people's sensibilities are. Like several, I won't, I won't name names. Several of the people are going to be more sensitive to what they have said and assuming like, hey, can you cut that down? Because I went on for 10 minutes. I'm like, you went on for four seconds. So you're fine. Whereas like other people offer more notes and I kind of know which one of those notes to take and which one of those notes to table until they come back with their second pair of notes but generally it's it's streamlined like most of the time i think most of the cast has not heard the episode until the live listen but once again that has happened after trust and building sensibilities and like right and not being necessary to do it and then yeah i'll render them out and i'll, I'll ship them off to our producer then we we got the next episode to do or the the next bonus content or things to review as you were describing that and, and how you've described a lot of the process for Dungeons and Daddies, but also how you do your audio dramas and that kind of stuff. 
a lot of those are very collaborative things, very kind of like back and forth. Hey, here's what I was thinking this or here's notes. Here's this, that, the other thing on the other side of things is the editing sound design where it's like, yep, I am locked in this room in front of this computer for as long as I as it takes for this episode to be done, as is going on long solo hikes up and down mountain trails and and all of that. Are you someone who needs both, who is always kind of looking to balance it or who's like, no, I always like the solitude, but then sometimes I guess I need to talk to human beings and like, I guess, playing games and, and doing improv and hanging out and going to parties is good too. I like extremes. So I either yeah. <laughs> want to live in the busiest, grossest, most crowded city, or I want to be living outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't go on day hikes because I'm like, that's not enough. I want to have a backpack with everything I need to live. And I want to go out to where no one can find me for a week. And same thing with that. Like, I really like my editing desk, which started with a little Ikea, like hand me down and like a MacBook Pro from 2011 has now evolved into something that looks like serial experiments lane where I have things strapped <laughs> to it. And it's a, you know, it, it's a standing desk with shells. And it, it's just this whole like I, I do a lot with like modular sense. So I'm just like like the aesthetic of cables everywhere. And so I, I like both. Like I went to the live show this last weekend and it was a blast. I was going to ask, what was that like? So I've been a performer my whole life. Yeah. I'm used to like, you know, performing to sold out crowds, both improvised where anything could go wrong to like, you know, plays that alarmed me because like Beth was like, oh, we didn't sell this, the show out. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if you've been in theaters in LA. They're not very big. Like my theaters in the Bay were way bigger. Like we have a lot of theaters here, but they're, they're just like, yeah, they'll suit like a hundred people. And so I was just like, okay, maybe we sold like 80 tickets. It's, it's funny that in LA we couldn't like get people to show up. I get there. And there's hundreds of people in multiple lines and there's people in cosplay and just like, what? And I walk in, I was like, oh, this theater is as big as anything I've seen any concert in yeah. LA. <laughs> oh, and I looked, um, there's like a D&D journalist who knows more about uh, our show than I do. Dr. Emily Friedman. Yes. Um, who, who I started interacting with after I had a tweet go viral and then got more in like <laughs> tune with the actual play world was just like, oh, yeah, they sold 1,200 of their 1,400 yep. seats. I was just like, so many people. Like, I almost lost my hearing when uh, dur during the beginning. Like, it, people were screaming. And I was like, I have to go finish the episode tonight because <laughs> we're kind of, like, behind. <laughs> it was the first time I saw the show through others' eyes. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I have fans for my projects. You know, I get emails that are yeah. like, hey, this changed my life X, Y, yeah. and Z. Um, I am fans of projects. I have also found that like most people I've been a fan of, a lot of them I've just met. And then we've had no time to do like a fan creator relationship because we've had to get to work. Yeah. And then I <laughs> have sure. worked closely with people other people are fans of. And I had no idea what they did before I met them, a la everyone in Dungeons and Daddies. Yeah, I was going to say that rocket jump stuff. See, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty good. Well, I was just like, who's the coolest creator in, uh, in Dungeons and Daddies? Beth. Because, like, her poetry is so freaking good. Like, I, like, I've just seen enough of those live performances. But then I was like, oh, wait, Freddie, but, like, they're killer directors. And, like, Will is one of the cleverest people I've ever encountered. But, like, they're ultimately chuckle fucks whom I right. adore. Remain and humans. <laughs> fix, like, their things. And we yeah. all kind of know each other's flaws. And we've seen each other be, like, late to things and whatnot. And so I just have not had a lot of experience 
with like actual like being starstruck celebrity that I, even when I like worked my minimum wage job, I was at a bookstore that was secret, like frequented by celebrities. So it's just like, Oh cool. Dustin Hoffman's in here. That's dope. <laughs> but like, you have to help him. Like you're, you're, right. you're working at the bookstore. You need yeah, to, to suggest books to him. <laughs> and so there hasn't been a lot of chance for that. And that has made it where when I look at other shows, I just like, I know TV writers. I, I just know people at all of these industries And even like I'm a Critical Role fan, but I am one degree removed from every member of Critical Role in like 19 different directions. And so chances are, if and when I encounter these people, we're going to be working on something. Mm -hmm. And you have that happen enough times where you're just like, yeah, they're all people. And also like I have to go make my own stuff. (laughs) Like I've had friends who are like, why don't you hang out with? these people and it's like i'm busy and they're yeah, busy stuff to do. and like i like what they're making and they like what i'm making and we are best i have my group that i'm hanging out with and they i'm assuming they have the same i'm always down for more friends but i think a lot of the things that come with that aren't there so for the first time like i knew dungeons and daddies was very popular mm-hmm. my uh partner when we first started dating i like brought me to their home state of georgia and took me to this like island resort in the off season. And I was talking to the bartender and he's just like, oh, what do you do? I was like, I make podcasts. He's like, what podcast? I'm like, it's one called Dungeons and Daddies. And he just like pauses. It's like, <laughs> I was listening to that on the way to work. And I never experienced that because like the show blew yeah. up in quarantine. So yeah. like Beth like got recognized for the first time. I was like, I, I don't even know what to do. Or we've had people come to our parties and be like, you know, hey, can I get pictures? I was just at a card tournament and people are having me sign cards, uh, which is for their coworkers, which is just like, Wild. sure. What a weird, <laughs> what a weird thing. In a great way. But it's one thing to for your partner to think you paid someone off to like talk right. about your show or like <laughs> sure. one of my co-collaborators who were is like over at Nebula, you know, is like every guy I've gone on a date with for the last year uh is like talk to me about Dungeons and Daddies and I'm in Ohio and I don't know why. <laughs> and then to be there and see that many people in an yep. LA context like shouting. I, I was it was the first time I've been shook. Like I was just like <laughs> I, I'm not usually overwhelmed very easily. I didn't know, like, had VIP seats. I guess it made sense but because I went up to the upper balcony because I'm like, I want to see this from above. And Will's like, hey, you have seats. Like, can you just like, give them to a fan? They're going to appreciate it more than I will. Yeah. Because, like, I know Freddie. I work I work, I work very closely <laughs> with Freddie. Like, we, like, I practically share a brain with him in the podcast world. But then it's just, like, remembering, oh, wait, this is Freddie. This is a showman. Yeah. So going out and having him come out with an electric guitar and having a, like, not realizing the screen in the back is a projector with custom 3D assets that are being played <laughs> for each person. Mm-hmm. And then Will's coming out and rapping an album I still have not heard because it's <laughs> pa- it's Patreon content I didn't make and I'm not a patron of Dungeons right. and Daddies. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, oh, my, okay. And, like, it's funny, Travis, like, nudged me. He's like, I need to take our job 30% more seriously. <laughs> and then later in the show when uh Will like jumped up and uh you know pumped his fist when he got a fact about a paladin ability correct for a bit of like in-game trivia to standing ovation I'm like you can take your job 30% less seriously. Yeah, again. right. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a grown man yelling about, you know, Knowing how lay of hands is an ability and not a spell. Yeah, right. <laughs> I will probably go on tour with them next time. Because Will was like, where were you in the tour bus? I was like, I was working on the show. But I could do that on the road. I, I'd like to be, I, I, I'd like to do anything once. I'll go be a roadie. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, I and I, I then kind of want to talk a little bit as we're kind of winding down about your about your projects, the things that you do, the audio dramas uh, and the stories that you tell. 
as I've told you a few times, I've just mainlined Esther content the last week. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? What was that like? My work's not exactly light. No, I, I'll put it this way. I loved all of it. I had to stop after a few episodes with a lot of them with the intention of going back, but it wasn't exclusively because it was like, well, I have to try another show. Yeah. It was also of like, skin pretty, skin pretty heavy, pretty intense yeah. here. I'm thankful all the time that I watched Twin Peaks The Return weekly because that's a lot, right? And yeah. not didn't just mainline it and try to catch up like I did with watching regular Twin Peaks. And that was definitely the sense I got on a few of your shows as well, in a good way, in a like, yeah. yes, this is effective and good, but was also a lot in a good way. So where do you start? Is it idea first? Like, here's the theme I want to explore. Or I come up with a character or a scenario. Or is it like, I want to try something audio-wise that might be interesting that I don't get to or haven't really gotten to try yet? And what's the kind of scenario that I can build to enact that? Or how does how do all of the parts of your brain and kind of your expertise all kind of come together when it comes to doing, you know, putting putting together all these uh, very surreal, very personal, very character-driven, and and also often horrific yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, situations. It comes together so quickly. Like <laughs> it comes together so quickly. It's like getting hit by a truck. But generally, like I am not interested in making something like putting in all the effort if it's not saying something mm -hmm. with like station blue like I, i'll have ideas like with the antarctica thing ch that chances are that started as like a call of cthulhu scenario where i'm like i want to make a show about bipolar disorder i want to make a show that i wish i had when i was 14 to yeah. like help me understand and navigate this and i also want a show that's going to create empathy for people with this from people who don't have it like i want people to understand mental illness better so that if you have empathy for this character i start with that i want to make something about bipolar disorder that that like communicates it with every element of it um and then beyond that it's like and i want it to be scary but i want it to be scary in the way that having bipolar disorder can be scary mm. from there i'll go and like figure out the structure of with bipolar you have depression you have mania you have the in-betweens there has not been a full like bipolar cycle in the show for the main character yet because the show's just taken place over a couple months with further season, as, as more time goes, you'll see that. But the structure, the like roller coaster of the show of when it's going up and when it's going down does follow kind of a bipolar element. Not only is it about someone with bipolar disorder and the horror elements and the cosmic horror element of it is coming from identity and bipolar disorder and like trans identity. But also the structure, the highs and lows of like, when am I going to put in a thing that's like really agitating or exciting or whatnot, that's also following all of it. So that with like every fiber of its being, it is expressing whatever my goal is. Yeah. Like I have a vampire show that will come out one day that I'm pretty quiet about because generally I'm quiet about projects that don't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, there, there's one that I'll tell anybody about because I'm very confident it's going to be maybe the greatest thing that's ever existed in audio drama. <laughs> and I, I'm not a bragger. I don't say that lightly. I'm just like, I think like factually, this is going to be one of the most awesome things. It won't be the bet. Like there's going to be things that are better written or whatnot, but this thing's going to be amazing. But with like Station Blue or with like other projects, that vampire show is about being new to a music scene and it's about abuse. Like mm -hmm. it is using the vampire thing to explore very specific abuse dynamics. I also try to be subtle. Like I, you could listen to Station Blue and not know 
bipolar totally. disorder is a thing. I never say the word in the show. Um, and same thing with the vampire thing. I don't want you to, like, if you experience abuse, to go in and just hear a bunch of people talking about it. I want the narrative to be in a way where you're like, okay, this this resonates with me. Um, and once again, if you don't have not experienced abuse where you can go through and be like, okay, maybe that's what it's like. That's generally what I'm working with. And then everything follows that. Like the sound design for Whale Song, for example, is quite different from like the sound design for Station Blue. Now when I make things, because Station Blue is like a flawed piece of work in, I mean, that is a good thing. Like I did not know what I was doing when I made the first season. I'm learning more every time that's going to make it inconsistent. It's going to make it lopsided. Uh, but I think that's part of the beauty of it. Whereas now when I make things, I can plan ahead better and I know probably how they're going to come across better. And I can also pick the idea that I think is going to accomplish whatever goals I'm after. I don't care too much about downloads and stuff these days. As long as it's resonating with an audience like Mm -hmm. 100 people versus 10,000 people, you're still only going to get like seven comments on a thing, you know, that you put out into the wild because most people aren't going to interact with it by design beyond listening, which is the most important part. Whale Song, for example, that was me throwing down a gauntlet. That was for a showcase. So I knew all these other talented creators that I liked and was fond of and had collaborated with. They had a $2,000 budget to make whatever they wanted. So I was just like, I don't want to get left behind. I don't want to make something that's not as like cool as other people's things. And so I made the most bombastic piece of audio that I possibly could. And I'm like, I want more maritime stuff in audio. So it's like, cool. We're doing an icebreaker ship on a strange Arctic ocean that is a whaler ship that collects men from all over time. And we're telling a story about masculinity and this obsession with whale oil because it's like a very gender oriented show. Like I'm going to have the main character be a trans man because like the prospect of getting this mythical oil that can like, it's kind of a wish. Like, like it's like a genie's wish on like, Oh, this can adapt to whatever you want. It's just like that to me, the idea of like, Oh, you cannot get HRT care. And now you can get something that can do whatever you want. Like, what does that even look like? Because for, you know, I'm a transgender individual. If you get me a button and said, oh, look like a cis woman, I don't think I'd press it because it's like, no, I want to look like me and I want to express myself. But like if you get that option of like no limits, I don't know. I want to see what that looks like. Sure. Masculinity, something I have a very interesting relationship with, having grown up with it and assumed it for a long time. And then in hindsight being like, oh, no, uh, I'm like, <laughs> oh, actually, no. I have like a, I have kind of a bizarre like cosmic, not cosmic horror, but like <laughs> this is this has always been kind of a bizarre thing to me if and when we make more episodes of Whale Song in the future. Because I made that pilot knowing I was not going to make more. I know what the rest of the season is. Like, it's a one-season show. Like, I know what the rest is, like, over the garden wall style. I know what the show is. Um, but that's something I'd want to, like, get a bunch of men to write, help write. Just because it's like, I want this to express masculinity in all of its forms. Once again, we get into empathy. Like, I, it's like, cool, if we're going to have a spitting contest... In the show, I want that to be done in a way where anyone can be like, now I see the appeal of spitting contests. Yeah. <laughs> and I want the good and the bad and everything in there. Like, I want the struggles and the pain. With Whale Song, I was like, I want to make the coolest thing possible. And having, like, a captain everyone's afraid of that requires a translator to speak for them. And having sirens attacking the ship at the beginning, because in this case, sirens are representing femininity. I wrote the scene because it opens with like a ship being attacked by sirens and a character like realizing they're not a man 
because they're like, why are the sirens here? That's actually Will from Dungeons and Daddies. Yep, there's Will from Dungeons and Daddies makes a cameo. Will audition. He's like, hey, can I audition for this thing? It's like, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> there was an Esther voice uh, voice as I as I recall in that scene as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that and that was me. And like, I wrote that scene years before before I was planning on transitioning. And I was like, oh, this is me seeing really? myself out of the project because it's a person getting like literally removed from the ship because they are not a man. And I was like, in the same way where I kind of have to do with this project. If I invented this and now I need to see myself out <laughs> because I'm not like an expert on this. But yeah, I just like, I want the coolest thing. I wanted to throw down a gauntlet that people who listen to it are like, audio drama can be more. Yeah. Because we have all these big studios making these expensive shows with mainline celebrities. And I made that pilot for 2000 bucks, which is the most, that's more than I've spent on season one of Station Blue. So, you know, if they're spending $30,000 on an episode, it's like, you, you could have this. There's no reason you can't have this. Is there something about the audio format in terms of like storytelling, something that appeals to you about that format and about that being the kind of paintbrush that you work with as opposed to to other things? Like is audio near and dear to your heart for a particular reason? Or is it just kind of what you've fallen into and, and happen to enjoy? Like what does it offer you? Being a horror lover and yeah. my approach to horror is I cannot necessarily scare you but I can foster a lot of empathy between you and a character, and I can scare that character. Ideally, then your empathy will contribute to you feeling something like fear. The thing that I think is most compelling about audio is the intimacy. It's not a book. Like, a book is also an intimate experience, but a book, you're doing the work of putting that in your head and imagining things. Um, whereas audio, you're doing a little bit more. There's a little bit more of a direct you know, creator reaching into your brain and enforcing specific yeah. images. But beyond that, it's intimate. You're generally listening with a pair of headphones or earbuds. You might be doing it on a, on a commute. It's the ultimate like brown paper bag over like an erotica novel, like reading in public, <laughs> where that is to you whatever it needs to be without judgment. If you want to have an awkward time, go do an audio drama listening party. Uh, we, we've done a couple of them and we sit there and we realize like, we're like, okay, this episode's 35 minutes late. Like, where do I look? Yeah, right. <laughs> what do I do with my hands? Yeah. It's not that it doesn't work in that format, but you're just like, oh, the thing I value about this is the intimacy. And now I look, I feel like somebody's going through my underwear drawer and I'm <laughs> listening to this with them. Mm -hmm. Being a horror creator, I think at my core, I find audio the most compelling medium for that. And then beyond that, because my work is usually focused on like building empathy and exploring various like identities and experiences, often through some form of horror, it's just to me the best medium for that. And also like just living in LA and having commutes, I also <laughs> just have a fondness for audio because it's a mm -hmm. piece of media you're taking with you. And then being a backpacker who will spend weeks, if not months out, you know, in the wilderness, it's also a nice thing. So between all of the, all of those things, it just, you know, I, I feel like I was accidentally raised and created and went through the struggles <laughs> and, and the triumphs and whatnot I did throughout my life to create audio. Yeah, yeah. Something that really always struck me with all the shows that I was listening to of yours was that level of of certainly saying something, but also of kind of that personal connection with a lot of stuff, right? Of Station Blue being about, you know, about bipolar, about Whale Song obviously being a an exploration of gender identity. 
Is that something that is necessary for you? Uh, is kind of the exploration of that, is that something that you find like, this is a thing I have to do, taking these big things or these big realizations and then kind of turning that into art? Or was it, hey, I like doing art and also I want other people to connect with it and and see this and kind of see what's important to me and these themes that are important to me and and hopefully have also a connection and, and feeling about it. Yeah, now that like once I started doing it, it was very much like, OK, I need to do this because it's been so beneficial to me. Having bipolar disorder can be a really miserable experience a lot of the time. <laughs> and knowing when I'm going through like a rough time that like, oh, I have spun this into a thing that other people have benefited from. Mm -hmm. uh, and not to get too like utilitarian where it's like, ah, I suffered for yeah. a week, but other people listened to this for months collectively. And therefore, you know, my suffering has brought goodness into the world. <laughs> but like being able to kind of get it out is helpful in a way I didn't necessarily anticipate. And then more than anything, seeing how it has benefited other people, like helps a lot. Because then if I'm suffering with something, it's like, yeah, but my suffering has spoken to other people's suffering. And it's also like helped them ideally suffer less and therefore like help me suffer less. Totally. And then there's just stuff where you like tell on yourself. Like I, <laughs> I was like be, being aware of like what non-binary was around making Station Blue. Um, so there's definitely like gender stuff and they're, you know, like I had like Rin is a character that's told through a journal that was always. But I thought like Rin was going to be kind of the trans journey and Rin's partner throughout that. And then I go back and listen now. It's just like. This just has a lot of like outward, really trans stuff. And I noticed I had like a big <laughs> trans audience for Station Blue. It's like, oh, man, I just told on myself. And someone I remember at the end of season one asked a question of like, essentially like, oh, what is Matthew's thing? I'm like, well, I tried to write a cis dude, but I'm not a cis dude. So it didn't work. <laughs> and because this this project so comes out yeah. of my guts, you can't help but have that rub off on all of the characters and like the way it's being told. And so now it's like, okay, Matthew's probably not a cis dude, but he is a dude alone in Antarctica in 2010 who does not know anything about like what being trans is. And so we're going to kind of see what it is to hold those things in, you know, and I, I haven't like locked down his identity because it's like I'd have to explore that through him. And that's just not what the show is going to do. But there is like, cool, then now we've added like gender dysphoria to the list more time, more in more ways than I anticipated. <laughs> Also, before I was very much like, cool, I can die whenever. Like, it's fine. I think a mix of like growing up Mormon and then getting out of that and being a very like optimistic nihilist, <laughs> you know, I was just like, I can die whenever. Like, it's fine. And I started writing. I'm like, no, I need to live because I'm not done telling this story yet. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a deep Stephen King reader, but I've read the first like four books that I don't love the dark tower, but I do love the gunslinger, which is the first book. And yeah. like, it just starts knowing that that whole series is about writing and on like, Oh, it starts with like, you know, the man in black fled through the desert and the gunslinger followed. And just like, it's just this character struggling over and over again to get back to like a reset point. Cause it's like, cool. You finished. Now you have to like write another book. Yep. Um, and I'm like, cool. This is, this is the rest of my life now is I will never <laughs> quite be comfortable because I will always be making a, another thing. 
having a resume has been really important to me as someone who came into creation, like in my late twenties, just to like show people what I'm about. Sure. And so I was just like, I do want to finish station blue, which is two mm-hmm. more seasons. I'm working on season two now. And then like, you know, I want to get that vampire show. It's like, once I have three or four works out there, people will know what I'm about. And then I can spend more time, you know, spending years researching thing and making something that's really going to benefit. I'm not looking to put out quantity. Yeah. If I'm going to say something, I want it to be something that only I can say. Sure. Absolutely. Do you feel the vulnerability kind of as a part of that? You know, do you feel vulnerable putting those sorts of feelings into your work and those sort of experiences? Or is it that you just like, no, these are my experiences and therefore I'm putting them out and hopefully people connect with them? A lot of like my life has been me playing chess against myself Mm. and trying to put different versions of myself as a at a great disadvantage. (laughs) If you have like a manic episode, you can really ruin your life. People would never know because you wouldn't you don't know what a person looks like when they're having a manic episode. And so it's just like, I want to make it as hard to ruin my life as possible (laughs) when that comes or if I'm depressed, I want to make it as difficult to lose a bunch of weight while depressed as possible. For me, telling people about my diagnosis was pretty key because I'd always forget about it because you don't know what mania feels like when you're depressed and you don't know what depression feels like when you're manic, even though you've experienced those things dozens of times. And it's not something people generally noticed outside of like how quickly I was speaking uh, throughout my life because I've been very good at like running an even like consistent life despite all of this. But then if it does come out and beat me, it's just like, all right, well, nobody's going to see that coming and that's going to create problems. I did not like people telling people in college, but I told everyone like I, to the point of oversharing because now it's like, ha, now I can't <laughs> pretend that I don't have this thing because <laughs> yeah, everyone knows. Sure. Yeah. And then the next ante up of that was making Station Blue. Like something I has not happened since, but like the first like con I went to after Station Blue, people are checking up on me and all of that. I'm like, these are people who just don't understand mental illness because they only know me through this mental illness horror show. So they think I am like on the brink of collapse. And I'm right. like, I promise you, Matthew and I are quite different characters. <laughs> um, if anything, it like you will find me in all of the characters. When season three is done, you put all the characters together and you'll you'll have some kind of version of me. But yeah, putting it out there, it's like, cool. Now I really can't hide this. And same thing with like transitioning. Yeah, because when Station Blue came out, I mean, you already said, but you had not transitioned yet when you had put Station Blue out. Well, and I didn't think I would be doing like a binary transition either. Even when I was making Goblet Wire, I suspected I would. And like I was prepared to re-record credits with my uh, my chosen name. Mm -hmm. This is all a process that like uh, largely audio helped me get to between like telling very vulnerable stories in which you you tell on yourself. And and to go to your vulnerability thing, I don't feel vulnerable. So I feel like I'm pushing myself out of a house, you know, Flintstone style and be like, go survive. (laughs) To take this next, you know, this next challenge. Now it's out there and you can't pretend it's not. So you have to go confront it and you have to go experience it and figure it out. (laughs) It's fucking awesome. It's technically vulnerability, but it's just like no secrets for you. Go deal with it because with both of mental illness and like being transgender, those are two things that's really easy to hide from yourself and lie to yourself. That's not the path to a good life. And so just like, nope, we're pulling it off. Now, tens of thousands of people know this about you and you can't unmake them know that about you. I was really reluctant to transition online. Right. Being trans was the first thing in my life that I was like, I don't know if I want to deal with other people's opinions on this. I don't know if I want to deal with my own opinions on this. Like, I think I'm just going to do this quietly. Yep. Uh, But then seeing like, 
I, and I think I would have made it here no matter what, but like seeing the Dungeons and Daddies audience and how many of them are like very young and queer and also like, you know, the dads are all like incredible allies, but, and you could suspect that, but I was like, I think there would be benefit for me being publicly out and doing this publicly. Uh, like I was ready for it at that point mm-hmm. because then it's like, oh, if you're a fan of this thing and you suspect, hey, like, Anthony and them are cool with this. And then, oh, yeah, one of their like core members of their crew are the, like, OK, you can have some trust here. You can further invest in the show. Not that I did it like for the show, but. Right. Yeah. Not not doing transactionally. <laughs> I didn't like I did wait like a month to change my name until season one was done because I wanted like all of season one to be under, under my old name. So then when you go to season two and Freddie, like everybody kind of has their way of saying congratulations. And Freddie's is to come up to me and be like, hey, do you want me to change all of your credits in the show? Which was just like, oh, it's. <laughs> So sweet because that's <laughs> Freddie's version of like all of that and I was like no nah, I, I don't think that's necessary I think in the future you know it might get to the point where people only really know me as Esther where it's mm-hmm. like awkward for them. And at that point, maybe we'll go back and change the credits. But I was like, I think right now it's cool for people to be able to like listen to season one, mm-hmm. hear the old name. Like I like, you know, I voiced a dad at some point, I think in the finale and then intro, like a secret other dad. Um, and then for season two, which is about identity. Yeah. To come out in there and if people are like wondering like if they should transition or like trying to figure it out see an example of like hey this is something that you love that this is something someone in there is also experiencing yeah absolutely first i i want to say that you have successfully created some wonderful lovely art uh, i loved all your shows very dearly and Thank it's you. Uh, super recommended to everybody and the last question that i i really had i think was what are the shows and or the stories that kind of really speak to you that have really kind of like put their worms into your brain that inspire you again it doesn't have to be podcasts doesn't have to be audio doesn't have to be whatever but of like these are the things that have like shaped me or the ones that i look to to inspire me or to aspire to and when i'm feeling low and out of creative juice i flip on this tv show and i just watch three episodes and boom i am ready to rock and roll again yeah Uh, I have a few answers. The things that made me are Goosebumps and Animorphs. (laughs) Hell yes. I did not realize that until I, well after I was creating, then I looked back, I was like, wait a minute, it's just all Animorphs. (laughs) Just all people turning into things and struggling and getting ripped in half. It's all Animorphs. (laughs) You and a lot of other people of our generation, I think. So yeah, that makes sense. uh, I I hope that movie works out so more people can get on that. Because all Mm -hmm. the Animorphs books are free. Like Applegate was just like... Yeah, she just like I couldn't come up with a deal she liked with the publisher. So she's just like, I'm just gonna put them all on my website. Then his dark materials, I think has been the most like significant piece of media in my life to this day, like which was another thing I kind of rediscovered while making Station Blue and went into it as like, oh, this is all over my work. A lot of the other audio drama creators that I've resonated with, it's kind of been a through line. Even Freddie, I think is like a huge his dark materials fan, which I was not expecting, like knowing him. But I didn't know until the show was coming out. And he's like, I want to direct this so bad. <laughs> I didn't hadn't touched the sequel series to it. And then I did a couple years ago. And now the most recent book in the sequel series is my favorite book of all time, The Secret Commonwealth, which follows Lyra when she's like 20 and her and Pan are estranged. The idea with those books is like you have a demon, which is your soul. Like you have like the Jungian concept of like anima and animus, which is your inner like woman, inner man. And that is manifested as an animal. So 
So on top of that being cool when you're younger, like, ooh, everyone has their animal. Yeah, hell yeah. When it gets to the more mature books in the sequel series, it's like, what what does it mean if someone is beating their demon? Like, there's a villain who has a hyena that he just beats. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean for Mrs. Coulter not to talk to her demon? Or in the sequel series, like, what does it mean for Lyra and Pan, her demon, to be estranged? It's just so fascinating. And that's a book I think a lot of people don't like at this point or don't appreciate it or they're like, it's fine. Whereas I'm like, no, this is like my favorite thing right mm-hmm. now. And then for enjoyment, I've got two things. It's it's One Piece and it's Stranger Things. <laughs> if I'm reading One Piece, I'm having a good time. It is <laughs> one of the most impressive pieces of creative work on the planet. This guy has been going nonstop since the yeah. 90s and has created an entire world that is cohesive and that somehow works and they're hurtling towards the end right now, which will take another five years. Uh, and <laughs> I think that's evidenced by like it becoming very popular recently, which is very confusing to me because like I've been reading this forever. I've never had anyone to talk to about it. Now I have people to talk to who know way more than me. Now it's on Netflix, baby. <laughs> well, now it's on Netflix and I watched a Netflix show, which I had no expectations and it was phenomenal. That's what I've heard. Every, it was all the fans. so good. All the fans who love it and have watched it. Super into it. I watched it in one sitting. I only had time to watch one episode and I was just like, I'll like pick at this show. Like I didn't really have a lot of interest. I watched and I watched it with someone who knew nothing about One Piece and we just tore through it because those yep. characters are Been just there. so fun. I don't really get inspiration from One Piece so much as One Piece is the closest thing, I think, to my D&D world. Yeah, got it. In that it's also a big cohesive thing that has like original ancestries that is like moving towards like bigger plots, whereas just like, ah, someone else has done it. And then Stranger Things is just like, I feel like that show is made for me. I know a lot of people who like Stranger Things. I don't know anyone who likes Stranger Things the way I like Stranger Things. Yeah, got it. Totally. Like, I I study that show. Like, I will watch it and be like, ah, cool. This little interaction ties in with this interaction from season one. Like, ah, Steve just said a a line he learned from Nancy, but they're not referencing Nancy. This is just showing how, like, people rub off on each other. Like, that's a show I don't have anyone to talk to about because everyone likes it. But I I was like, you do not want me to annoy you about Stranger Things. (laughs) I want to go deep into Stranger Things. You're not ready for what I bring to this Stranger Things conversation. And and there's, there's obvious things like The Thing. There's a lot of music, but like... Those didn't make me. Those are things yeah. that validated me. If anything, <laughs> like they're things I went. They resonated with me. Yeah, um, totally. They were an icebreaker for my audience and me. Like with Station yeah. Blue, everyone's like, "Is it like the thing?" And I'm like, "Sure." And when you go in, it's <laughs> nothing like the thing, but it's Antarctica. Yep. It's horror. It's yep. body horror. Everything you like about the thing is in there. It's just a very different show. <laughs> yeah, it's just not the thing. <laughs> yeah. If you want the thing, go watch the thing. Esther, I have taken up so much of your time. <laughs> you have, we anticipated this. We did, yes. We 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 cleared it ahead of time with each other, and it has been just a delight as expected. But I have to give you some crushing news. Okay. Part one is that I think it's time that we unfortunately wind down this very wonderful, lovely conversation. I don't know how I'll ever recover. Well, you know, that's an interesting, interesting phrase, because what you are about to experience, I also don't know how you will recover from. Okay. What happens next is the infamous, the grueling, the challenging of identity and sense of self, reckless attack, lightning round. Okay. Now... For you and for any listeners who are not familiar, we ask the same questions to every single guest who's ever been on this show in the exact same order. 
There are no wrong answers other than I like to say, I guess, if you like lie, but that's just because it's kind of like lame, I guess. You can have a one word answer. You can launch into a a thesis statement that really kind of puts everything, all of creation into perspective. Or you can just pause, think about it and say, you know, don't think I have a good answer for that one. And that I will also pause. I will nod respectfully and we'll move on to the next question. Very elegant. Are you ready for the lightning round? I think I'm as ready as I can be. I'm certainly warmed up. That's the, <laughs> or or maybe too warm, or I don't know, yeah, you know, like an burning. engine overheating. I'm not no sure. no air conditioning in here. I am actively in a not air conditioned well enough room, and it's going fine. <laughs> I'm a mile from the ocean. It's not too bad. Esther, question one. Is your glass half full or half empty? My default glass, how my brain works, is half empty, but I have put like 20 layers of half full on top of it. Everything is just what it is. It is perfect in its way of existing, and I accept it. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Creatively, works that excite me are works where people put a lot of themselves into it, Mm -hmm. and people who feel compelled to make a thing. I want works where someone's like, I would make this in a cardboard box if I had to. Those are the things that that really get to me, I think. Like, that's what I'm after. And that can be in any form. Mm-hmm. But those are usually the projects I'll be most excited to sign up for. What does not excite you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Oh, God. Hollywood's approach to audio drama does not excite me. One day they'll make a good one. It's not that they're bad and like the cre- I want to give credit to the creators of them who like put in just much as much heart and soul, but you you just have a disconnect from those creators. And also they have plus six figure budgets. They could do so many cool things. That was like Whale Song was me throwing down the gauntlet of being like, <laughs> please more of this. <laughs> So right mm-hmm. now, Dirk Mags is my only like hero who's pushing envelopes. But to to their credit, I know more and more of like my peers who are getting hired mm-hmm. to run these, and they are making more exciting things. So how Hollywood's approached it, also uh, like just labor movement right now. Hell yeah! The response to the labor movement does not excite me. The studios and bigwigs and suits just sitting there and being like, no. How do you expect this to go? I just, and I know the answer to that. And I'm like, you people, there's <laughs> mushrooms, to quote the prince, the little prince. What is your favorite sound? Uh, I like storms. Mm. If I'm, I'm going to interpret that as what's my favorite sound design piece. I really like sound designing storms, and I will take any opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. But anything water-oriented in real life, like water's, water's good. Water sounds good. What sound do you hate? I mean, there's things like nails on chalkboard. I don't like the sound of bathroom fans being left on. Anything Mm. that's like barely noticeable, but noticeable enough to irritate you slowly over a period of time to the point where by the time you decide to do something about it, you're already just like, (laughs) and I don't like mouth noises. Mouth noises are evil. You chose an excellent uh, profession then. (laughs) I I will tell you, I will go in and I have like a paint software where I can put audio on a spectrogram and I can paint out mouth noises and I do it. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite word? Ophidian is fun. Mm. Well, a show I worked on, Ophidian was uh, a word they referenced. That's That's a fun word. Shout out to Jordan Cobb. What is your least favorite word? I don't know. 
there's got to be some. I don't like bathroom humor, so I guess words associated with that. I'm not going to say them because I don't even like them. (laughs) You know the ones. You know the ones, maybe. What tabletop role-playing game and or D&D monster, antagonist, etc. have you never faced or run, and or run that you would love to? I have never faced a Tarrasque, which I feel like is maybe the last, you know, I've been killed by beholders. <laughs> I, I've grabbed treasures. I, I've lost care. I've been torn in half by gray renders. I've never fought a Tarrasque. Totally. Because it is interesting that in D&D, like, there's so many options. People tend to have very consistent experiences, even if they're not running, like, pre-made adventures, which, like, I never grew up with pre-made adventures. But that that's a guy I've been aware of for a while. I really like the old art of the Tarrasque. I think you should use that instead, where it's, like, a big turtle with, like, a bearded face gobbling people up. But I, I'm going to say that. I don't even know how I'd fight it. I know you have to, like, cheese them usually, but I'd be curious by those prospects, especially if it was in, like, an actual campaign. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And this can be a tabletop role-playing game adventure. It could be one you ran, one you were in, one you watched, one that you read, or it could just be 1999's The Mummy, whatever this, whatever the answer is for you. I love adventure movies in general, which is in the can of like Pirates of the Caribbean, The Mummy, Van Helsing, which is a sequel to The Mummy, which a lot of people don't know. The D&D movie that just came out is a great addition to that. Uh, Stardust is a great addition. Like they're just fun. Mm hmm. And I know I just threw a lot of things at you, but, but those are all good adventures. I just I want to go to different parts of the globe. Ideally, if we could like make them a little bit better with like out like the inherited imperialism of it all. And that's kind of an interesting thing for our hobby to tackle, or I guess our profession in a lot of ways is just like imperialism is baked into the heart of so many role playing games to the point where the one I played over the pandemic that my buddy ran, we all happened to be like nature oriented people and we were idiots. And so we're going through forests and we're supposed to like make deals to help get a road made. And we're just like, no. And he'd like, <laughs> it got to the point where we were under equipped because he'd be like, oh, I set up a dungeon for you that's run by trolls. And we would just go talk to the trolls and like figure out, make, make sure that where they fit in the ecosystem is fine. And if they're <laughs> overextending, we'd beat them up. But like, it's like, you're supposed to take their stuff. We're like, what part of our, our characters don't even know how money works? Like what part of you thinks we want to take their stuff? But it's also fun. And so that's kind of the challenge of like, how do you use this thing? I don't think the answer is just to throw it out. But with a lot of those adventure things I like, I'm like, oh, there's also just a lot that's baked in imperialism. Oh, yeah. And the answer of that's just like representation, tackling this from other point of views, like giving power and voice to like voices that are there that just don't necessarily have the mic. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And again, it could be one of yours. It could be an NPC. It could be one that you watched. It could be whatever. Uh, There's a character I played, Salamander Chance, uh, who's a beguiler, which is my favorite third edition class. It is all the worst parts of the rogue and all of the worst parts of the wizard. So nobody (laughs) would play them. But the way I play beguilers, I think is fun. Can't really do damage, but I don't need to do damage. It's just like the ultimate Swiss army knife of being able to run away and run up walls and confuse people and it's i i like playing that character a lot there's a great time last question what gives you hope 
the heat death of the universe is really far away and we're all made out of elements of it. Mm-hmm. So that's hopeful. Other countries and newer generations give me hope. Even if we're fucking up and going backwards, <laughs> it doesn't mean other countries are. And we have the internet now so we can communicate with people from all over. Uh, and I really like youngsters. I think they're kicking ass. The youths. Yeah. And also just, I don't know, the struggle, just the knowledge of like, hey, you might be in power, but I don't care. I'm going to like I talked to the family. My family's like they're all Mormon. They're not really conservative anymore. Like they're more and more getting out of that just because it doesn't fit their values. You know, they're just I was just like, look, I have to be political because I'm I'm trans and it's a requirement like exist. Taking a pill every day is unfortunately an act of rebellion. And I wish that that was me overstating it. I don't feel rebellious doing it, (laughs) but it is like there's, yeah, yeah. And those people are going to die. And that's death. Death gives me hope. There we go. That's that's my answer. I said heat, death of the universe and new generations. The themes of those are are death. So death gives me hope. Yeah, pretty much sums it up. (laughs) I am looking forward to death when it comes, just because I love novelty and I don't think there's a more novel experience than dying. Esther, yeah. congratulations. You have made it to the end of the lightning round and the Reckless Attack interview. Thank you very deeply for your time and energy and expertise and general loveliness. As a reward, could you please tell everyone who you have been, where they can find you, how to support you, all that good stuff. Uh, I've been Esther this whole time. The whole time. I am at various social media tags at Esther the Esper. My name is not Esther with an H, so E-S-T-E-R-T-H-E, Esper, like Final Fantasy VI, E-S-P-E-R. I have not been zeding lately, uh, and so I'm on Instagram and the, the blue one, though I have not gotten in the habit of using them. But you can find me at those things. As far as works, right now, you should go listen to and subscribe to The Goblet Wire. Ultimately, it, it's it's a microfiction, like surreal audio drama that is meant to cater to role players. I just have not figured out how to break it to the role playing world yet, but I think they'll <laughs> dig it once I do. Um, and we have a mini series that will be coming up next, starring Beth May, everybody's favorite member of the Ooh. Daddies, playing uh, the most just depressed, um, going off the deep end person you've ever heard, which you, you have not necessarily experienced Beth performing. So check out that. And then I also have Station Blue is my main show. Uh, it's going to be a three season show. It's just going to take a while to get out because it's a, it's a bit of an opus. So YouTube uh, visual adaptation, I heard, though, coming out. Yep, working on that, working on video game spinoff. Uh, there's a bunch of other projects relating to Station Blue that are happening, but other people get to worry about those where I, I worry about getting the main narrative out. But right now, I check out The Goblet Wire, and Whale Song is on there. Whale, Whale Song. Song's the best thing I've ever made, and so, well, the Sarah episodes are the best thing I've ever written uh, in Station Blue. Those are the only things anybody cares about, but <laughs> you'll, you'll know them if you hear them, but Whale Song's the coolest thing i've ever made if you just want to spend 20 minutes be like what's esther about especially if you've heard my work on dungeons and daddies and want to know what i would do if i was not held back not that they're holding me back but it's just not the nature of the show Uh, go listen to whale song esther thank you once more and very appreciate you very dearly and goodbye bye 